BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Skull and Bones, a.k.a. The Order, a.k.a. The Brotherhood of Death, Order 322. Skull and Bones is Yale University's oldest secret society. Ah, yes, it is but one of many secret societies associated with Yale. So many secrets. Skull and Bones has been shrouded in mystery and secrecy ever since it was founded nearly two centuries ago now, back in 1832. All members take an oath promising to never reveal the group's activities and secrets, and they seem to take that oath very seriously. According to the traditional mainstream sheeple narrative, Skull and Bones was founded by a group of Yale juniors who were either angry over the year's honor society elections or inspired by occult European societies or perhaps both. We'll, of course, also look into a ton of conspiratorial allegations today. But again, relaying what is documented. From the 19th century to the present day, 15 Yale juniors are tapped by senior members every year who have selected them to be the next annual iteration of Skull and Bones. The juniors who accept and participate in strange initiation ceremonies and are supposedly required to reveal their life history, including all their sexual experiences, to the existing Bonesmen and other initiates and maybe the devil or something. There's a lot of wild rumors. Three former U.S. presidents have been members of Skull and Bones, along with many wealthy businessmen and important politicians. Other than the presidents, uh, this has helped lead to numerous conspiracy theories revolving mainly around members conspiring to establish a new world order. Skull and Bones is a prestigious secret society dominated by wealthy elites, but do they actually have any nefarious intentions? Are they helping each other into positions of power as part of some evil subversive plan Or are they helping each other into positions of power? Because that's how networking works. That's how people in literally every profession and business organization in the world uh, handle themselves. Do the exact same thing. I mean, if you were running a business and you could help a stranger or an old friend, a friend you know received a great education and would do a good job, what would you do? 
If you were able to help someone who would likely do you a favor back because you were both in the same group when you were younger, or you can help a stranger who doesn't have that connection to you and would be less likely to reciprocate. Again, what would you do? Is the skull and bones really associated with the infamous Illuminati? Are they in a, an international mafia of sorts or just an organization no more dangerous and terrible than, say, the Elks Lodge, the Eagles, the Loyal Order of Moose? I had an older gentleman at the gym volunteer to sponsor my membership into the Fraternal Order of the Eagles recently. If I join, does that make me part of the Illuminati or do I just have a new bar to go to? What dark truths, if any, have conspiracists uncovered about this organization? Is it really a group to be feared? Or is the Skull and Bones Society nothing more than a group of some of the finest slash most popular students at Yale coming together for a unique bonding experience that will give them access to some of the world's most powerful and successful people as they begin building their careers? This week, we'll discuss the founding of the Skull and Bones Society, some of the most famous members that have called themselves Bonesmen, the Society's alleged strange terminology and initiation rituals. We'll meet some of the journalists and writers who have spent years trying to uncover the secrets of Skull and Bones and go over a brief timeline of notable events in the society's history. In another conspiracy, is this the Illuminati or just another group that drives a certain segment of society crazy by refusing to share their secrets edition of Time Suck? This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. School is in session. Talking about school, today at least. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, white devil, new world order stooge, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. A couple really quick things, and then we're off and running. Thanks again to everyone who's bought tickets to the stand-up shows recently. The tour continues. New Orleans. Philadelphia this weekend as this episode drops, Cleveland, Columbus in a few weeks, and then back to the clubs uh, to build a new hour. TV for tour info for tickets. Bloomington, Madison, Phoenix coming up as far as uh, spring material building club dates. And now for this week's merch announcement. Now available from the makers of Fighting Man comes the official merchandise collection featuring Fighting Man, Fight, 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 Atomic Man, Nuke, 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 and Warrior Woman, Sword, 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 Sword. Bad Magic Comics presents official t-shirts and wall art, now available at badmagicmerch.com. Coming soon, Attack Cat, Karate Woman, and Spy Person. Ah, shit, yeah. Uh, Shout out to Jeremy Blake for creating the uh, non-copyright 8-bit track called Power Up. You heard there. It's fun. And how about that's it for today's announcements? Uh, I imagine uh, a bunch of outrage right now hearing that. No, please, please do more announcements <laughs> that have nothing to do with the Skull and Bone Secret Society. You know, followed by literal hisses and boos. I'm glad that's not a thing now, by the way, hissing as a form of disapproval. That would be fucking weird and super annoying at stand-up shows. Right, you finish some material that somebody doesn't like, and you just <laughs> what, a, what a weird thing. Uh, let's get going. Uh, 
Uh, Structure-wise, today, meat sacks, we're going to meander a bit. Boo! (laughs) Uh, Hard to stay perfectly structured with a topic that begs for me to take uh, side roads as we go through it. First, we'll start with a short overview of the history of Yale University. Makes sense, obviously, uh, to get a feel for the school where this all started, where this continues. Then the meandering begins. Uh, We'll cover the skull and bone society itself, their symbols and terms, their origin, and connection to the original Illuminati. Some notable members and reported initiation rituals. And of course, we'll look at all kinds of speculation about the real, true conspiratorial intentions of this secret society. Relying on a pair of journalists who seem to have done, uh, you know, more actual journalism than most. While also looking at one author who maybe did not do the best investigative journalism. And instead focused more on titillating accusations. Mm, Titillating. I like that word. That's a sexy word. Not the sexiest topic today, but a sexy-ass titillating word. Uh, Towards the end, we'll cover a brief timeline of some significant events in the society's history. Um, And then, maybe, just maybe, since many of you have sent in messages recently asking about it, we'll bring back that old segment, Idiots of the Internet, to uh, see what some, uh, you know, uh, people on the lesser side of being informed have been saying about this group. All right, Yale University is a prestigious, I feel like when it's Yale, you're not supposed to say prestigious, it, prestigious Ivy League school located in New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven, one of America's first planned cities founded by the Puritans back in 1638. And in 1639, its streets were laid out nice and tidy, its first streets and a little four by four grid. Never been to New Haven. Uh, while about 500 colonists were present for the start of the new community on April 24th, 1638, just over 130,000 people live inside the city limits today with about 865,000 in the metro area. It's located along the central southern coast of Connecticut, just across the Long Island Sound from New York's Long Island, about 20 miles from Long Island via boat. The city served as co-capital of Connecticut from 1701 all the way until 1873, over 170 years, and then the sole governance was transferred to the more centrally located city of Hartford. Since 1873, New Haven has built itself as Connecticut's cultural capital. So that's a nice little uh, self-given uh, consolation prize, I guess. And Yale University has long been the cultural capital's biggest taxpayer and employer and still is today. Yale controls New Haven. The skull and bones control Yale. And New Haven controls, uh, well, not even Connecticut, sadly. Uh, graduates of Yale include U.S. politicians, diplomats, five presidents, Nobel Peace Prize winners, uh, Nobel Prize winners in general, many other notable individuals throughout U.S. and world history. Former presidents of Mexico, Germany, the Philippines, Latvia, and more have studied at Yale. Former Turkish and Italian prime ministers, uh, not going to speak it right now, uh, Taiwanese premier and various royals have studied at Yale. 19 American Supreme Court justices, over half a dozen current U.S. senators or Yale alumni, Numerous Nobel uh, Prize, uh, excuse me, and Pulitzer Prize winners, Academy Award winning actors, actresses, directors, Jodie Foster, Paul Newman, Meryl Streep, Oliver Stone, uh, Stone, Francis McNormand, McDormand, why did I say McNormand? Uh, McDormand have all studied at Yale. Grammy winners, Tony Award winners, National Medal of Arts winners, noted journalists and pundits like Anderson, Cooper, Fareed, uh, Zachariah, Zakaria, (laughs) I think is how you're supposed to say that. (laughs) Sorry, Fareed. And on and on. The founders of Boeing, United Airlines, Time Magazine, FedEx, Electronic Arts, Pinterest, Morgan Stanley, so, so, so many other corporations, right? These people have gone to Yale. 
Rumor has it the true hidden founder of Bear Evil Incorporated has also gone to Yale. And of course was a bonesman. Dozens of Fortune 500 CEOs, so many Olympians. The only American university that has an even more prestigious alumni list would be Harvard. And not by a lot. Uh, Yale is the third oldest higher education institution in the U.S., founded, as I said, in, uh, well, maybe I didn't say 1701. Uh, Harvard is the oldest, founded over six decades previously in 1636, followed by the College of William and Mary, founded in 1693. I've been to those other two campuses, but not to Yale. Yale is one of nine colonial colleges, which uh, were chartered before the American Revolution. The full list, Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, the University of Pennsylvania, Brown, Dartmouth, and Rutgers. Patrick J. Mahoney wrote for the Connecticut History, for Connecticut History, uh, not the, all of these institutions played an integral role within their respective colonies as centers of learning and scholasticism, as well as training grounds for future leaders and professionals. Given the economic realities of the period, students largely attended colleges close to home. Therefore, in the same vein as state universities today, these colleges became identified with the particular colonies in which they resided. And the New Haven Colony was where Yale was founded. And it kicked off at the exact same time as the city of New Haven, 1638, founded by those roughly 500 Puritans who had fled New, uh, fled England. Uh, they fled because of religious persecution. That's what I learned in, in grade school. Uh, what I didn't learn was that they were persecuted mostly because the Puritans were fucking insane. Like a thousand percent batshit insane. More on that in a second. Reverend John Davenport, an Oxford graduate, was the religious leader of the New Haven colony. Davenport wanted to establish a theocratic colony and a college to educate future leaders. The colony didn't last long. It never had a charter, giving it uh, some kind of legal title to exist as far as England was concerned, and it never mustered much of a militia to defend itself against being forced into not existing anymore. The early days in New Haven were interesting. A government based only in the Bible quickly led to witch trials decades before the later Salem witch trials. Connecticut was actually the first colony to put so-called witches to death. Plans for a college library started in 1656, but plans to establish the college were suspended when King Charles II forced New Haven to join the larger Connecticut colony uh, it bordered to the north in 1665. In 1700, a group of 10 ministers led by Reverend James Pierpont met in Branford, a town that butts up against New Haven now, to found a college. Each minister donated books and made the statement, I give these books for the founding of a college in this colony. Probably said it similar to that. Uh, Reverend Pierpont donated Bibles and hymn books. Reverend Crane donated several medical books. Reverend Winthrop donated copies of A Model of Christian Charity, popular book at the time. Reverend Taylor donated Upon a Wasp Chilled with Cold, a book of prayer meditations. Reverend Mitchell donated various books on Roman history, Greek philosophy. And Reverend Skeet Skeet donated copies of Illustrations of Buxom Beauties I Thought Long and Hard About for Months on a Boat and sketches of nude native women that make my spirit and other things soar. Both recently uh, self-published titles. I have no fucking idea uh, who donated books other than Reverend Pierpont. I made the rest of that shit up. 1701, New Haven was made co-capital of Connecticut with Hartford, as I mentioned. The governor and general assembly met in New Haven for the first time in October of 1701 and passed an act for liberty to erect a collegiate school. The purpose of the school was to instruct young people in arts and sciences quote, for public enjoyment, both in church and civil state. And by young people, they, of course, meant young white men and no one else. 
Don't even fucking think about stepping into the classrooms, front butt owners and possessors of large amounts of melanin. The General Court of the Colony of Connecticut approved this act, which would establish a collegiate school to train men for careers in religion and politics. Reverend James Pierpont and his colleagues secured a charter for the collegiate school. For some random trivia, Pierpont would have nine kids and his descendants include the dude who wrote Jingle Bells and famed Gilded Age banker and financier J.P. Morgan. School's trustees chose the nearby little town of Saybrook, not New Haven, located at the mouth of the Connecticut River as a convenient location for the school. Abraham Pearson, a minister from another nearby town, Killingworth, was the first president of the college. The college operated in Killingworth until 1707 when it then moved to Saybrook. Then the college moved again to New Haven in 1716. Yale's curriculum focused on classical studies and adhered to what was called Orthodox Puritanism. And to me, that education is way fucking scarier than some kind of new world order shit. If I had to choose between some kind of Gilead theocracy or a one world government Illuminati type thing, well, bring on the new world order. Illuminati, here I come. Who's dick do I have to suck? Puritans were insane. Check out the five basic core tenets of Puritanism. They're founding principles uh, around this time. (laughs) One is uh, the concept of total depravity. Most Christian sects believe in the concept of original sin rooted in Adam and Eve's temptation and fall, the Puritans took it further. They like to take things further. Puritans took the concept of original sin to mean total depravity. To the Puritans, people were not only inherently sinful, we meat sacks are evil as fuck. There is no horrendous crime we are not capable of committing. If you don't give yourself to God, you're going to be skull fucking Nana, roasting some babies on a spit and probably a couple months tops. Second uh, tenant, unconditional election. In other Calvinist Christian sects, the concept of unconditional election is often called predestination. Puritans believe that God chose who would be saved and who would be chosen for eternal damnation, and that a person could not do anything to determine God's choice, and that being a devout member of the Puritan church was not enough to be elected for salvation. While other Christian denominations do believe that people can choose salvation, Puritans believed that the choice was God's alone, and how completely fucked. (laughs) What a deal. What a cool, fair, loving God, right? You can live a life of total obedience to God, believe in Jesus as your savior, never masturbate, never dance, never fuck anyone outside of marriage, not have any fun uh, inside of marriage, Uh, basically live a super boring, sad, joy-deprived life and still end up in hell with people who actually had fun when they were alive. The Puritans put the Z in zealot. Again, I'd, I'd much rather live in some kind of satanic new world order fever dream than live under the thumb of these just oppressive clowns. The third tenet was limited atonement, uh, really just an extension slash clarification of the previous tenet. Like other Christians, Puritans believe that Jesus Christ died to atone for the sins of man. Uh, Puritans, however, believe that Christ's atonement did not extend to everyone. Only those who got elected received the salvation benefits of Christ's atonement. Those elected were part of an exclusive group and not all Puritans were necessarily considered saved. The next, the fourth tenet, irresistible grace. Puritans believed that once God chose to elect someone for salvation, that person could never resist God's grace. Being chosen meant that a person had found the path to salvation, which included ecstatic or, um, excuse me, ecstatic intimacy with the divine. Mm, sounds uh, pornish. Uh, Puritans could be called on both internally and externally. Being chosen internally meant that God changed a person's heart to respond to the gospel. Uh, gospel. The external calling was to preach the word of God to others. So in a nutshell, the most important part of that is God has a cool kids club. And if you're in it, life is super easy for you because you generally don't want to sin. 
right? You're called towards doing the right thing. So it's pretty easy for other people. You know, it's a fucking struggle, but oh, well, life's not fair. And those other people were probably destined for hell anyway. So, you know, fuck them. And then finally, there's perseverance of the saints. A person elected by God's grace would never depart from the path to salvation. So really an extension of the last tenant. Uh, the person would have complete power to understand the word of God and would never turn towards evil. By definition, understanding the word of God meant that someone would never depart from God's commands. The person would instead persevere towards salvation. Uh, this belief is in stark contrast with other Christian denominations, which believe that even people who are saved sometimes fail to understand and can choose to depart from God. So did I say there were five tenets? Really just three. Without God, we're all evil monsters. Believing in God and following his rules does not guarantee salvation. And God picks who he wants to save before they're even born and makes it easy for them to end up in heaven. So super fun. Now let's go burn a witch. Burn the witch. Burn the witch. In the early 18th century, a businessman named Elihu Yale donated nine bales of goods to the school uh, so they could have an established building of their own and no longer have to bounce around. The goods, which were cloth, sold for 562 pounds. Elihu Yale also donated 417 books and a portrait of King George I. To honor his contributions, the collegiate school was renamed Yale College. Uh, the name Elihu comes from the Bible. He was a guy who basically told Job, a dude who suffered so much, even though he really didn't fucking do anything and was very devout in his faith, uh, to quit whining about it. Uh, accept God's love, even when it shows up in the form of nonsensical punishment. Elihu was the step-grandson of Theophilus Eaton, co-founder of New Haven. Theophilus, another biblical name, the dude who uh, in the book of the book of Acts and the book of Luke were addressed to. Also translates to an old Greek, a friend of God. Very biblical names in the family that you don't hear a lot today. Elihu lived from 1649 to 1721. He was an English merchant, an official of the East India Company, as well as a benefactor of Yale. Elihu was actually born in Massachusetts. Moved to England with his family when he was just three. Uh, interestingly, never returned to live in the U.S. He was a wealthy man who made most of his fortune in diamond trading. Illuminati blood diamonds. Uh, Yale made his first contribution to the collegiate school in 1713 when he donated, you know, uh, 32 books. In 1718, Cotton Mather, the prominent Puritan minister and writer, wrote to him, hinted that, you know, the Saybrook School could be named in your honor if you fork over a lot of shit. Uh, Yale was a college that promoted modern ideas, modern for the place and time, that came from the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. The school grew in the 18th century despite the chaos of the American Revolution and its aftermath. Yale experienced a big increase in students during the war because students were exempt from military service, uh, but some would fight in a the militia. Then after the war, men who had served in the military started attending school, and for many years, Yale had the highest enrollment of all the colonial colleges. President Ezra Stiles wrote in his diary, Total 218, the greatest number ever together at once in an American university. 218 the most. My, how times have changed. The largest student body in the U.S. right now is Texas A&M and College Station. Almost exactly 75,000 students. 75,000 at one time. That is a lot of kids. If you go there and you're having a hard time meeting people and making friends, I hate to break it to you, but there's a very good chance that you are fucking terrible at meeting people and making friends. Uh, by the mid-19th century, Yale was still the largest college in the U.S., and then Yale changed its name to Yale University in 1887. Yale grew more during the late 19th, 20th centuries. The School of Medicine was chartered in 1810. I guess not the, just late 19th, but the entire 19th. Uh, followed by the Divinity School in 1822, the Law School in 1824, and the Graduate School 
of Arts and Sciences in 1847. Yale would award the first Doctor of Philosophy degrees uh, in the nation in 1861. In 1876, Yale awarded the first doctorate degree to an African-American student, uh, Edward Boucher. Boucher was the uh, first black graduate of Yale, went on primarily to work as an educator. Yale's first co-ed school, first university uh, and the first university art school in America opened in 1869, right? Women could study, but only art. (laughs) Go sit over there and draw something cute, girls. Uh, Might I suggest flowers? We men will be over here learning how to dominate the business world and extend the patriarchy. Wear something pretty. Uh, The school wouldn't become fully co-ed until 1969. Yale hosted America's first collegiate rowing races in the New Haven Harbor in 1843. Yale and Harvard competed in the first intercollegiate races in 1859, which marked the beginning of a pretty famous rivalry between the schools and the use of school colors. Then Yale alumnus Walter Camp, class of 1880, helped create the sport of American football. may have heard of it. Known as the father of American football, among uh, a long list of inventions, Camp created the sports line of scrimmage and the system of downs. Uh, Now today, Yale has over 11,000 students, counting grad school and undergrad, and over 3,000 faculty members. And while it's obviously known for being one of the most prestigious schools in the U.S., also known for having several different secret societies, the most infamous of which is Skull and Bones, a.k.a. The Order, a.k.a. Order 322, a.k.a. The Brotherhood of Death. That's a good name. No wonder there's so many conspiracies circling around Skull and Bones. Although the Order of Skull and Bones is uh, made up of Yale students, it and other Yale secret societies are actually privately owned. There are eight total so-called landed societies associated with Yale. Skull and Bones, Scroll and Key, Wolf's Head, Book and Snake, Elihu, uh, Berzelius, Mace and Chain, and the ancient order of soul eaters, let Satan begin his reign on earth and the babies of the righteous shall be curb stomped. Or maybe the last one is known as St. Elmo's. <laughs> I, wish, I wish they had an order with that actual name just to like be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Uh, St. Elmo's not as prestigious as Skull and Bones. Of course not. It's, it's a, it's a weak ass name comparatively. Who can take a secret society seriously with Elmo in the title? Uh, Before continuing with Skull and Bones, let's take a few minutes to give an overview on just a few of these other orders. Scroll and Key, founded in 1842, is reputedly the wealthiest of Yale's secret societies. It's one of the so-called big three of Yale's secret societies, alongside Skull and Bones and Wolf's Head. Like many of the old societies, they hold meetings on Thursdays and Sundays, have 15 members who are seniors, and recruit a new 15-member class from the junior class every year. The building that serves as their clubhouse of sorts is also like the Skull and Bones Meeting Center, referred to as a tomb. And here's what one supposed uh, member said happens in their tomb. And allow me to play some uh, secret society type music for a little bit of dramatic effect. Our week usually consisted of an informal dinner on Sundays where it was just our current delegation term for the current group cohort of 15 afterward we'd have either a bio or just hang out movies tv drinking laser tag mixer with another landed society etc thursday nights were very different we'd dress formally and have dinner with a small group of adults who were either members or honorary members Honorary members are usually faculty members. 
We also usually had an invited speaker who is prominent in his or her field. After dinner, <laughs> the adults leave. The delegation usually does the usual college hangout things. We only wear black robes and white masks around tap. The process time when we pick a new delegation from the junior class. <laughs> but we do have meetings in the secret society where things get done. These more serious meetings usually occur in a special, sacred room. I wouldn't say we control anyone's future, but our own. We encourage each other in our endeavors and learn to rely on other people who have been members. This usually, this usually leads to interesting, useful connections when it comes to uh, career moves. Whoa! How nefarious. Do you have chills? I have chills. Career networking? Sometimes wearing robes and masks for dramatic effect. Laser tag? Whoa. I bet laser tag is practiced for controlling the world. Scary stuff. Uh, the bio they mention is a central feature of most, if not all, of these secret societies. A bio is when each member spends an evening recounting his or her life history, personal development, and aspirations to the group. A devilish way for these secret cabal motherfuckers to really get to know each other and form... Long-lasting friendships. Illuminati! Uh, the founder of Case Western University, a mayor of Chicago, a mayor of Philadelphia, U.S. Supreme Court justices, senators, the guy who engineered statehood for Idaho, where I record every week, all former members of this group. Political pundits, Fareed, uh, <laughs> Zakaria, Stone Phillips, the founder of the Chicago Tribune, composer Cole Porter, Harvey Cushing, a.k.a. the father of modern neurosurgery, Doonesbury cartoonist Gary Trudeau, also former Scroll and Key members. I like the name Scroll and Key, by the way. It's a, it's a good one. And then there's Wolf's Head. Wolf's Head was created by 15 rising seniors from the class of 1884. People considered possible taps for the older societies, but they didn't get tapped. And they created the so-called Third Society with some help from some members of the class of 1883. The society changed its name to Wolf's Head in 1888, five years after forming. This formation continued, uh, or I guess it would be, excuse me, four years after forming. Uh, this formation continued the tradition of creating and sustaining a society if enough potential rising seniors thought they had been overlooked by existing societies. You won't let me in your secret society? Fine. If you can't beat them, copy them. I'll just form my own secret society. Uh, Skull and Bones was established after a dispute over selections for Phi Beta Kappa Awards. Scroll and Key was established after a dispute over elections to Bones. And now Wolf's Head is established by kids not invited to scroll uh, to <laughs> scroll or bones. Uh, this group also has 15 senior members, also meets Thursdays and Sundays. While the Skull and Bones group are rumored to have taken much of their rituals from the Freemasons or been influenced uh, or inspired by Masonic rituals, the original Illuminati, etc., Wolf's Head apparently looked to ancient Egypt for symbolism and ritual construction. Very little is known about their inner workings other than they are thought to be pretty similar to the inner workings of any of the other secret societies at Yale. Meetings. Bios, handshakes, probably a little bit of laser tag. Ugh. The usual, you know. A uh, number of senators, noted artists, Congress members, diplomats, first president of MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, Supreme Court justices, they've all been members. And there's even less info online uh, about uh, the other groups. According to information on Berzelius, did I say Berzelius earlier? It's Berzelius. This society takes its intellectual mission very seriously. Invoking Socrates' exhortation 
the unexamined life is not worth living. As well as stating to its prospective members that... Berzelius provides opportunities for achieving thoughts through an open, honest exchange of experiences, passions, and opinions. This process prepares its members, whose diversity is highly valued for an active, intellectually vigorous, and moral life, giving them a place and time for contemplation and reflection so that they might rise boldly to the challenges of their lives, devoted to good character, tolerant of others, and willing to serve their communities while forging links of mind-to-mind in a chain unbroken. So, you know, sounds actually pretty fucking cool. Uh, these landed societies all own their own buildings, uh, which, while they may look like they're on campus, are, again, privately owned. The secret society buildings are located in main campus areas where they're very visible, seen by many students every day. That visibility combined with secrecy, of course, has helped lead to a lot of conspiracies. And there are many other non-landed secret societies at Yale. Secret groups that don't own their own club or frat house or tomb or fucking laser tag course or whatever you want to call it. Though they may rent one, there's Spade and Grave, Myth and Sword, Leviathan, and numerous others. And I'd never thought of this before this week. There are numerous other colleges and universities across the U.S. that also have secret societies and have had them for a long, long time. Excuse me. The College of William and Mary became home to the first known collegiate secret society in the U.S., the FHC Society, founded in 1750. The initials stand for the Latin phrase, Fraternitas Humanitas cognit- uh, Cognituc. I'm not great at uh, Latin. Uh, uh, Brotherhood, humaneness, and knowledge. That's what it translates into. Uh, Third U.S. President Thomas Jefferson was a member. This society has faded and completely gone away, but then been revived several years later uh, and then fades and goes away and then gets revived. That's happened numerous times over the years. The nation's first collegiate Greek letter organization, Phi Beta Kappa, formed on December 5th, 1776 at William & Mary, founded as a secret literary and philosophical society. Columbia University has three secret societies. Cornell University has had many over the years, with at least four operating on campus today. Sphinx Head, uh, Der Kexenkreis, Quill and Dagger. That's a great one. Quill and Dagger. And Order of Omega. Ooh, another good one. Dartmouth, Dickinson, Duke, Emory, Fordham, Georgetown, Harvard, uh, where secret societies are called finals clubs. And go back to 1791, uh, James Madison, John Hopkins, Loyola, NYU, Rutgers, Smith, University of Chicago, on and on and on and on. So many schools have versions of secret societies. Skull and Bones just seems to have had more powerful members than most. And, you know, they're also one of the oldest. Skull and Bones, the oldest, again, of Yale secret societies, like most, if not all the others, you know, made up of 15 members a year, if I didn't say so already, and also meet on Thursdays and Sundays. Skill and Bones was founded in 1832 by Yale junior William Huntington Russell. Russell was reportedly inspired by an occult society he visited in Germany. William Russell spent a year in Germany, quote, among members of some of the most mystical and elite clubs in the world, including organizations that mimicked the Enlightenment era Illuminati. And we talked about the origins of the Enlightenment era Illuminati in the Freemason two-parter a long time ago. And in the Illuminati revealed the new world order conspiracy episode. Suck 114 back in November of 2018. I'll recap what they're about uh, briefly since it has been a while. After the following sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my better help therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. 
You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now we're back into the story uh, of recapping the history of the real Illuminati. Skull and Bones primary co-founder William Huntington Russell may have been inspired by when he traveled to Germany, stayed there a year, visited other secret societies thought to be derivative of the OG Bavarian Illuminati. They existed just a half century before Russell uh, traveled to Germany. In Bavaria in 1776, a professor of religious law named Adam Weishaupt formed a group called the Order of the Perfectibilists, basically perfectionists, with the notion that through mutual aid, philosophical discussion, careful advice, they can improve morality and virtue, oppose evil, improve society, and thus reform the world in a very good way. And they came to be known, came to be called the uh, Illuminati. The word was adapted from a Latin root, Illuminatus, which directly translates to enlightened. You know, they were the enlightened. It wasn't Masonic, uh, but sounded Masonic. And in fact, Weishaupt took some of his ceremonies from the rituals of some new Freemason lodges uh, formed in his area. He did this at a time when a variety of members only organizations were super popular in the 18th, 19th centuries in Europe, also in America, back when men's only and women's only organizations were all the rage, right? The Odd Fellows, the Muslas, the Rebecca's and so on. And they all have the rituals. All have been formed primarily so members can network for new business opportunities, meet like-minded and or interesting people, get away from their families. Uh, and because we're herd animals and it's just plain fucking fun to be in a club with, uh, you know, some inside jokes, handshakes, traditions, etc. Weishaupt is probably the most important name in Illuminati lore, considered by many to be the founder of the real Illuminati. Uh, he was an avid reader and intellectual who questioned a lot of the conservative ideas of his day. He was a professor of natural and canon law at the University of Ingolstadt. Uh, he was married and started a family. He was doing deep dives into subjects like Jewish mysticism and ancient Greek philosophy in order to learn more about the world around him, right? learn about the history of religion and philosophy. He was trying to enlighten himself and the Catholic Church, an organization with a spiritual stranglehold hold on most of Europe at that time, did not particularly care for that shit. Right? A lot of churches, in my experience and in my research historically, uh, do not encourage their adherents to enlighten themselves in this way. The more Adam studied, the less of a fan of the Catholic Church and the nations controlled by the Pope he became. He also became less of a fan of the Bavarian government, finding it to be intellectually oppressive, and he began to dream of a revolution. He wanted to create a world with freedom, as he wrote, under the pen name of Brother Spartacus, free from all religious prejudices, a world that cultivates the social virtues and animates them by a great, feasible, and speedy prospect of universal happiness. To achieve this, he felt it was necessary to create a state of liberty and moral equality, freed from the obstacles which subordination, rank, and riches continually throw in our way. And he formed his group to meet in secret to talk about how they could create a brave, new, enlightened world. Originally, there were only five members. They adopted secret names like Brother Spartacus and codes to communicate with each other. Weishaupt, in particular, had to keep his role a secret because he made his living as a professor of Catholic canon law at a Catholic university. Under, again, the pen name Spartacus, Weishaupt outlined a secret plan to infiltrate the Freemasons, overthrow the governments of nations and churches, take over the world, and create a new world order of tolerance for a multitude of ideas, not just church-sanctioned ideas. He wanted equality. 
In a short time, the Illuminati grew to about 2,000 members and they expanded into Belgium, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Poland, Hungary, Italy. I'm trying hard not to say Italian things. France. Unfortunately, the Illuminati attracted both the best and the worst of aristocratic society. And its aims began to lean far more to the destroyed governments and churches side than to the improved society side. At the same time, Weishaupt's Catholic students at the University of Ingolstadt were uh, being increasingly pumped full of his anti-Catholic rhetoric. The Jesuits figured out their betrayer, who Brother Spartacus was, and they outed him. As the confessors to the royalty of Europe, they had their own network of spies and infiltrators and convinced the Bavarian government to arrest this man in 1784. He fled the country to avoid arrest, but left behind incriminating papers outlining the Illuminati's ambitious plans for world domination. They were widely published all over Europe to expose the Illuminati's secret plans and flush out other members, many of whom wound up in prison. And then in March of 1785, the Bavarian crown passed an edict which expressly banned the author of the Illuminati. And then they supposedly died out and shit. So by 1785, the uh, actual Illuminati group that for the most part sounded like a fucking cool-ass group I would have loved to join, uh, thought to have come and gone. Only lasted a few years, didn't overthrow shit. Or so they would like us to believe. Uh, But seriously, Splinter and copycat groups, of course, formed under an untold number of names and the name Illuminati and any symbolism and language the group used became, uh, you know, underground cool. For anyone who wanted to start any new anti-establishment, subvert the dominant paradigm, fuck the man, kind of rage against the machine kind of groups. Or for anyone who wanted to network with other powerful people and not mix, you know, with the riffraff and just, you know, sound cool. And so other fraternal and secretive organizations continue to form as they had been, you know, prior to the formation of the Illuminati. And some of them borrowed Illuminati imagery so they would, you know, seem all fucking hip and shit. And Russell, Skull and Bones founder, he met up with some of these groups. He was rich, his family had connections, and so of course he was able to schmooze his way into some secret societies founded and made up of other rich connected people. Uh, Russell wanted his to form his own secret society in the U.S. later, uh, so he chose several members of his Yale class to be the first members of the Brotherhood of Death. Nice fucking metal, bro! Uh, Russell was heir to a fortune made in the opium trade to dead money smart uh, he was also an intellectual he was the valedictorian of the class of 1833 the class order and the secretary of Phi Beta Kappa a prestigious honor society uh, the one I already mentioned that had been founded at the College of William and Mary in 1776 started off as a secret literary and philosophical society then became a leading academic honor society in the U.S. Russell Skull and Bones co-founder was Alfonso Taft, a man who would go on to become the future Secretary of War under President Ulysses S. Grant. Taft was also the father of President William Howard Taft, who would also become a member of the Skull and Bones Society. Uh, William Howard Taft would say in a 1909 speech at Yale that his father was so determined to get a good education that he, quote, walked from Vermont to Amherst College, Mass., and then he heard there was a larger college at New Haven, and he walked there. I hope that's literally true. I love that. Work for it. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Russell and Taft had four other co-founders. All were members of Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, they initially invited just eight people to join their society. Two members came from Ohio and Illinois, uh, what were then considered Western states, and two came from Southern states. The Washington Post writes, rejecting the day's anti-Masonic movement that deplored all things secret, Russell lured a select few of his most promising classmates into a covenant sworn to secrecy for fear of repercussions by the faculty and for the prestige of exclusiveness. That little quick note about repercussions is important. When these societies were founded, yes, of course, part of the lure 
right? The allure uh, was to be in a cool club, you know, with lots of fucking skulls and uh, mantras and bad boy shit that made girls curious and other dudes jealous. But also, just like the faculty of the University of Ingolstadt, how they didn't like what Adam Weishaupt was discussing with fellow students, his uh, Illuminati shit, the faculties of a lot of these early American universities did not like what students might be discussing in any kind of secret societies. The faculty at Yale tried to shut down the school's secret societies numerous times in the early years. Part of why they were unable to do so was that they weren't able to completely prove who was in these groups while they were still in school during the early years. A lot of the secrecy was born out of practicality. Uh, Every year going forward after the initial formation, 15 members would be chosen on tap day or tap night. Still 15 today. One evening during spring semester, juniors are selected by a current senior uh, who claps them on the shoulder. New members' names are then made public in the Yale rumpus. Uh, The list of who is in, uh, you know, what fucking group. uh, It's been going on for years now. You know, they they do publish a name. They just don't say what the activities in the group are. Uh, Members meet in a windowless room twice a week, Thursday and Sunday again. You know, taking oath of secrecy. Uh, For Skull and Bones, one meeting each week is supposedly for socializing. And then the other is for debates. Uh, Sometimes uh, that first meeting, instead of socializing, is for bios, which we'll talk about, you know, uh, a little bit later. The Society's Clubhouse is a brownstone building in New Haven called the Tomb, as I said, constructed back in 1856. We'll learn more about the Tomb in the timeline of significant events. Uh, right now, let's look at some of the conspiracies that surround the Skull and Bones. Of course, Skull and Bones has been the subject of various conspiracy theories for decades. Right? People have made it their mission to expose the Society's initiators, rituals, and records. In 1986, Anthony Sutton published a so-called expose titled America's Secret Establishment. Uh, claiming that the society's goal was to create a new world order run by members of the Skull and Bone Society, which led to a whirlwind of conspiracy theories. This is a a book that gets pointed to a lot in uh, conspiracy lore around Skull and Bones. According to the author page for Anthony, Sutton was a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University from 1968 to 1973. He was a former economics professor at California State University, Los Angeles. He was born in London, in 1925, educated at the universities of London, uh, Gottingen, Gottingen, and California with a doctorate of science degree from the University of Southampton, England, and passed away in Reno, Nevada in 2002. And the book he wrote is wordy and fucking boring. Holy shit. I'll summarize the key points as best I can. He says that the U.S. Council of Foreign Relations, an independent nonpartisan member organization, a think tank, Specialized in U.S. foreign policy and international relations, founded in 1922 or 1921, a very influential think tank, has had a lot of former Skull and Bones dudes as members. And it has, uh, you know, had even more uh, Bonesmen as, you know, has, has, a, has even more non-Bonesmen members, but does have a number of Bonesmen. And the CFR has provided the CIA with a ton of classified poly re- policy recommendations over the years. Many government officials are members. And he points out that during the Eisenhower administration, 40% of the top U.S. foreign policy officials were CFR members. Eisenhower himself had been a council member. Under Truman, 42% of the top posts were filled by council members. During the Kennedy administration, this number rose to 51%, peaked at 57% under the Johnson administration. But again, not all of those CFR people were bonesmen, right? Not even close. He doesn't really ever hit that note. He'll just say like, well, this organization has a lot of bonesmen. And then look at what this organization has done. Well, yeah, it might have like 5% bonesmen. And like, so the, the argument doesn't make sense when you actually present the, the percentages. 
The Rockefeller Foundation has funded numerous CFR studies. There have been numerous bonesmen in the Rockefeller Foundation, but again, more members have not been. The CFR has two types of membership, life membership and term membership, which lasts for five years. Uh, the first one, the term, mem- or sorry, the term membership is five years, available only to those between the ages of 30 and 36. There are over 5,000 members currently and no mention of exactly how many current members are bonesmen. Uh, Anthony Sutton asserted that within the CFR is a secret group that controls it by controlling the CFR. Uh, it actually controls U.S. foreign policy. That policy is heading to a one world government, Illuminati, deep state, new world order situation. And this talk has been going on for decades. That secret group is supposedly known as the order who composes the order, the skull and bones. So the skull and bones controls world foreign policy. Boom. They are the new Illuminati. They have already secretly taken over the world. And how exactly does he know that? Well, Sutton doesn't know that. He provides zero proof of that. Writes a lot of words, stretches a lot of proverbial yarn between various thumbtack pictures and some kind of war room, but no proof. Just, you know, uh, says it with some exclamation points. Sutton gets a lot of shit obviously wrong, too. He states that only Yale has secret societies. That is unequivocally not true. He says there are only two others, Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head. That is also definitely not true. Has not been true for a long, long, long time. Uh, says that Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head are connected to the Skull and Bones. There is no evidence of that. Uh, nothing public, at least. He just makes assertions and says, well, these are the facts. He spends much of the book listing various powerful members and pointing out that they have been important members of the United Nations, the White House, the Federal Reserve System, etc. Talks about how they have been influential in shaping U.S. governmental policy, shaping U.S. corporate history. He says that the Bones have mostly focused on trying to remake the world to their liking and he uses the term New World Order a ton, like maybe thousands of times. Points out that Bones members have founded or controlled tons of very influential foundations, the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, etc. Talks a lot about the Trilateral Commission, similar organizations. He connects Bones members to the founding of a lot of American universities and medical establishments, right? They control America's education. They control the medical science uh, field. They control America's psychiatric facilities and, you know, uh, philosophy. They control top law firms, have many members, uh, you know, infiltrating the State Department and the Pentagon. They decide what wars to wage and how to wage them. They control American banking. Uh, You know, the, uh, the skull and bones are obviously satanic symbols. So this is all satanic in direction. He actually devotes an entire chapter to the skulls and bones being satanic symbols. And how does he know that? Well, I love this. <laughs> his like primary, his evidence that he starts off with is he, is he um, quotes a random obscure artist, Margaret Elizabeth Stuckey, born in 1928. Can't figure out if she's still alive or not. The, inter- the internet doesn't seem to really care about her. And Marge once said, primitive minds who have not yet found God and sophisticates who have rejected him Desire the mask and the skull. Boom! Fact! Print it! Marge said it. So it's true. Marge only speaks truth. Uh, Does Anthony actually share any proof of anything uh, definitively nefarious that the group is up to? Does he provide proof of their devilish inner workings, of them feeding babies to Baphomet, or slitting virgins' throats and drinking their blood while screaming incantations to the Dark Lord? No, of course not. Basically, he acts like it's big news that an organization that for most of America's history has been based uh, in one of the top two U.S. universities in terms of prestige, an organization that sought the 15 best students each year from one of the best classes of students in the nation each year, the cream of the crop, uh, you know, from America's wealthiest and most powerful families. And somehow it's shocking that this organization would place members in many of America's most important roles. 
fucking what? It would be shocking if they didn't do that. The sons and recently also daughters of America's most powerful families who graduated from one of the nation's best schools handpicked because current members and undoubtedly former members think they have potential for greatness. Of course, those people are going to end up in the most powerful positions in the nation. Some of them, right? This group is fucking built for career power play networking at the highest level. That is not conspiracy. That is business. The Skull and Bones is a networking group. They got it started almost 200 years ago, a group full of so much old money and talent right from the start. And Sutton thinks it is shocking that it would kick out a ton of leaders and important government officials. And then once in important groups, he thinks it's shocking that these people would then recruit more of their closest friends from college, people typically who are extremely intelligent and well-educated and connected. And then these people, people who joined a group built on chasing enlightenment, wild that they would want to shape the world and make it the way that they want it to be. Not shocking. That's logical. Not conspiracy. Human nature. If you fell into a ton of money, fell into some power, and you know, are you more likely to surround yourself with people you know or people you don't? Why do rich and powerful people often marry rich and powerful people? Well, because for starters, they have a lot in common. Right? I fell in love with Lindsay because we had a lot in common. Both came from you know, both of us came from poor blue collar backgrounds. Both of us uh, artistic adventurous, want to try and change the future of our families first, you know, uh, for our kids and blah, blah, blah. We, we love to dream big. I promoted the social groups connected to this show for years. Why? Because it's a great way to meet other people you have something in common with. It is natural to seek out those who you have something in common with. And, and if you are also very ambitious and born into privilege and driven by a lust for power, if you grew up with all the creature comforts and were raised to seek enough money to keep those comforts coming in, would you not also seek out people who can help you uh, into the most important and lucrative career situations possible? Fucking yes, of course you would. And another uh, advantage of the wealthy sticking with the wealthy, you don't have to worry about losing the family fortune in a divorce to some gold digger if you marry into more fortune. That is not evil, it's smart. It's not romantic, certainly, but it's smart. I'm sure wealthy people do have people trying to marry them for a slice of that big fat pie left and right. So yes, for a variety of reasons, wealthy birds of a feather often do flock together. And yes, because of that, there have been Skull and Bones members in many, many important influential institutions. And they will continue to be. Do they want to change the world? Yeah, I bet they do. I do. So do you, I'm guessing. That all to me is not a conspiracy. Again, it's just how the world works. You know, uh, another conspiracy, much smaller one, is that the Skull and Bones stole Geronimo's skull and hid it in the tomb. In 2009, Geronimo's descendants actually sued Skull and Bones in an attempt to have the skull handed back to them. I'll talk about that in the timeline. And the tomb also allegedly home to President Martin Van Buren and Pancho Villa's skulls. Uh, proof of this? No, just allegations. Uh, the society has also been associated with the JFK assassination. Any proof of that? No, just random allegations. You know, so-and-so was in the CIA when Kennedy was killed, and so-and-so was also a bonesman. So, ta-da, it's right there, hiding in plain sight. Uh, most conspiracy theorists are not very uh, good at the concept of correlation does not imply causation, right? A large number of powerful people were once members of Skull and Bones. Yes, a story once compared Skull and Bones to an international mafia. MJ Stevie uh, wrote for Time Magazine in 2009, Bonesmen have at one time controlled the fortunes of the Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Ford families, as well as posts in the Central Intelligence Agency, the American Psychological Association, the Council on Foreign Relations, and some of the most powerful law firms in the world. What they don't point out in little like statements like that, though, is not at the same time. <laughs> and these organizations have been around, some of them, for well over a century. 
and have leadership changes, you know, every few years on average. So it's like, okay, you had this guy leading this organization in fucking 1891, and then another dude leading this other organization in uh, 1924. And what these people don't point out is all the other leaders who have nothing to do with the skull and bones. Like if every single leader of all of these groups all were connected back to the skull and bones, then I'd be like, oh, okay, there's fucking something here. Uh, 2004, George Bush, John Kerry, both former members ran for president against one another. That did a lot to stir the, uh, they control the world pot. What? Both candidates are bonesmen. It's all rigged. No matter who you choose, you choose a bonesman. And yeah, that was true for one fucking election. One of many, uh, Yale graduate author, Alexander Robbins once spoke with MSNBC host, Keith Olbermann about skull and bones. Uh, we're going to quote her a lot going forward. She was a member of scroll and key. She wrote Secrets of the Tomb, Skull and Bones, the Ivy League, and the Hidden Paths of Power, published in 2002. Olbermann asked her, there seems to be no middle ground about this organization. You know, talking about Skull and Bones, of course. Either the group is viewed as the warm-up act for the Trilateral Commission, or it is a society devoted to making people thinking that it's nefarious and then giggling when people take it seriously. Which is it closer to being? Robbins answered, it's actually closer to the middle ground. There are conspiracy theories that you'll hear that are based on nuggets of truth. The sole purpose of Skull and Bones is to get members into positions of power and then have those members hire other members to prominent positions, yeah, networking, which is something that President Bush has done. Basically, this is probably the most powerful and elite alumni network in the country. And that's the significance of Skull and Bones, right? And there you go. The most powerful and elite alumni network. I totally believe that, right? And it's called Skull and Bones. Right. And it's uh, connected in a roundabout way to the original Illuminati. Well, this guarantees that it's going to rile up conspiracy theorists for many, many years. Alexander graduated summa cum laude, has written five New York Times bestsellers. She appeared on just about every national news program in existence over the last decade or two decades from NPR to CBS, CNN, C-SPAN, so many more. The History Channel, Comedy Central's Colbert Report, 60 Minutes, Coast to Coast AM, on and on written for the LA Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and more. Won a ton of awards for her writing. Uh, she does seem in short like a pretty damn credible source of information. She's written about many of Yale's famous secret societies. Scroll and Key, uh, Wolf's Head, Berzelius, Book and Snake. Let's talk about some terminology and symbols used by the group she wrote about most, the Skull and Bones. Uh, the members of Skull and Bones are generally referred to as Bonesmen, as I've been saying. Uh, and sometimes, uh, since women became allowed to join, Bones Women. Graduate members of Bones are called patriarchs. Members still undergoing initiation uh, slash current members, sometimes called knights. Outsiders are referred to as barbarians. I fucking love how elitist that is. Well, I don't think the Skull and Bones is some evil conspiratorial one uh, world controlling cabal. I do think that many of them, you know, there's a good chance they're elitist pricks. I mean, raising so much wealth and privilege, you know, getting to Yale, you get into uh, this uh, elite group of 15 people a year. Well, that's, that's exactly how you become an elitist prick if you're not careful. Uh, the society uses the term temple for their meeting place, often called the tomb. The symbol of the group is a skull with two crossbones with the number 322 beneath it. Yale Alumni Magazine writes that one popular theory is that the number represents the year 322 BCE when Alexander the Great died. Uh, another explanation for the number is that it marks the death of Demosthenes, a famed Greek orator, big name in the world of public speaking and debate. I'll explain who he was in the timeline. I, I think he was important to the group's founding. The Skull and Bones Society was originally named the Eulogian Club. Skull and Bones lore often references a fictional goddess of eloquence named Eulogia. I'll talk about her later too. She's uh, 
maybe akin somewhat to our Lucifina. Hey, Lucifina. Now let's discuss just a few of the famous members of Skull and Bones, mainly former presidents George H.W. Bush and his son George W. Bush. Since they seem to be uh, by far the main targets of the conspiracy-minded, you know, Skull and Bones is the New World Order crowd. And I'll weave in and out of some of their uh, rituals as we learn about the Bushes and others. Three presidents have been Bonesmen, right? The Bushes and William Howard Taft. And no one conjures up images of world domination like one-term president Billy Taft. (laughs) They don't actually have that many presidents overall for a group accused of running the world, right? Two of the three led for only one term and then were defeated by non-Bonesmen, probably to throw us off their trail, uh, dozens and dozens of bonesmen have been senators and congressmen over the past two centuries, 23 U.S. senators by my count. I did add them up myself off an internet list, so I could be off. Most of them in the 1800s. There have been a ton of generals, ambassadors, Supreme Court justices. The list is massive. So many mayors. Uh, one head of the CIA, also President Bush, a few CIA agents, actor Paul Giamatti, the guy who founded the Pittsburgh Penguins, NHL team, Pulitzer Prize winners, Olympians. Honestly, outside of a handful of the politicians, most of them are names that I do not recognize. Way more recognizable names have come from Harvard and his clubs. The most recognizable names by far are the two President Bushes. The younger Bush wrote in his 1999 autobiography, my senior year, I joined the Skull and Bones, a secret society. So secret, I can't say anything more. And when that book was published, many were like, aha, those motherfuckers, they're rubbing their world domination plans right in our faces. Uh, just because he won't talk about the secrets. Uh, Bush actually would criticize Yale for its intellectual snobbery and said that the school epitomizes a certain East Coast attitude and intellectual arrogance. Now, did he say that because he meant it or did he say that because he wanted to get votes from the blue collar crowd? Uh, Bush has seemed to distance himself from Skull and Bones over the years. Alexandra Robbins, the author and Yale alum we met earlier, wrote, the elder George holds his fellow Yaleys, particularly his Bones brethren, in great esteem and over the years has often gone to them for advice. George W., in contrast, has publicly made a point of his disdain for the elite Northeastern connections that shaped his father's world and, to some extent, his own. Bush's dismissal of Yale and all it stands for may be a response to the repeated charges of political opponents that he is not much more than a papa's boy. Uh, Robbins wrote that the Yale Admissions Committee that voted to admit George W. Bush had three members who were bonesmen. What? A Yale Admissions Committee had three members who were members of a Yale club? Fucking crazy. Uh, after George W. graduated and was rejected by uh, the University of Texas Law School, he called fellow bonesman Robert H. Gow. Uh, and Bobby told the Washington Post that he hired Bush as a management trainee for his agricultural company. 1977, when Bush started Arbusto Energy, he received help from his uncle, Jonathan Bush, also a bonesman, and $565,000 from 28 investors, at least, uh, you know, a few of whom were bonesmen. 12 Bonesmen gave money to Bush's uh, gubernatorial campaign in 1998, and at least 46 Bonesmen, or sons of Bonesmen, donated money to his presidential campaign. Old money connections helping him. That's wild. Uh, Bush called conspiracy theorists about him regarding the Skull and Bones, the kind of connect the random dots charges that are virtually impossible to refute. And that would be annoying to literally just be in a club that isn't being nefarious and be unable to convince people of that because it is secretive. Like how many angry people have screamed at the former president for his membership? Thank God for the Secret Service. They are needed. Uh, The elder Bush was harmed by his membership in the Skull and Bones at least once in the 1980 presidential election. In 1980, he lost the Republican nomination to Ronald Reagan uh, when the eighth commissioner of Major League Baseball, Faye Vincent, 
Called him afterwards. Bush supposedly said, Faye, let me tell you something. If you ever decide to run for office, don't forget that coming from Andover, Yale, Skull and Bones, and the Trilateral Commission is a big handicap. People don't know what they are, so they don't know where you're coming from. It's a really big, big problem. Yeah, I don't think he's wrong. I think people fear often what they don't understand, and they don't understand these groups because they're secretive. I mean, he would later become president, so it didn't hurt him that much. However, I'm, sh- I'm sure he still lost some votes due to his connection, due to him, you know, because of being a bonesman, being bona fide Illuminati in the eyes of many. American journalist, literary critic, and uh, maybe pretty dramatic guy, uh, author Ron Rosenbaum has written a lot about the bones over the years, including a big investigative journalism piece for Esquire in 1977 called The Last Secrets of Skull and Bones That Really Added to Conspiracy, Interest, and Lore. This was widely read. Rosenbaum's 1977 article believed to be the first expose of this secret society. And he became interested in Skull and Bones when he was a student at Yale. He was a member of the same graduating class as George W. Bush and lived right next door to the tomb. Uh, Rosenbaum wrote in his expose, I can trace my personal fascination with the mysterious goings-on in the sepulcher across the street to a spooky scene I witnessed on its shadowy steps late one April night 11 years ago. I was then a sophomore at Yale living in Jonathan Edwards, the residential college built next to the Bones tomb. It was part of Jonathan Edwards' folklore that on the April evening following tap night at Bones, if one could climb to the tower of Weir Hall, the odd castle that overlooks the Bones courtyard, One could hear strange cries and moans coming from the bowels of the tomb as the 15 newly tapped members were put through what sounded like a harrowing ordeal. Returning alone to my room late at night, I would always cross the street rather than walk the sidewalk that passed right in front of Bones. Even at that safe distance, something about it made my skin crawl. Huh. Is it just me or does this guy kind of come across like a melodramatic dork? kind of guy who would still get spooked as an adult watching a Scooby-Doo movie or or something. But that night in April, I wasn't alone. A classmate and I were coming back from an all-night diner at about two in the morning. At the time, I knew little about the mysteries of Bones or any of the other huge windowless secret society tombs that dominated with dark authority certain key corners of the campus. They were nothing like conventional fraternities. No one lived in the tombs. Instead, every Thursday and Sunday night, the best and brightest on campus, the 15 seniors in Skull and Bones and in Scroll and Key, Book and Snake, Wolf's Head, Berzelius, and all the secret societies, he says seven, some sources say eight, disappeared into the respective tombs and spent hours doing something, something they were sworn to secrecy about. And Bones, it was said, was the most ritualistic and secretive of all. Even the very door to the Bones tomb, that huge triple padlocked iron door, was never permitted to open in the presence of an outsider. All this was floating through my impressionable sophomore mind. That night, as my friend Mike and I approached the stone pylons guarding the entrance to Bones, suddenly we froze at the sight of a strange thing lying on the steps. There, in the gloom of the doorway on the top step, was a long white object that looked like the thigh bone of a large mammal. I remained frozen. Mike was more venturesome. He walked right up the steps and picked up the bone. I wanted to get out of there fast. I was certain we were being spied upon from a concealed window. Mike couldn't decide what to do with the bone. 
He went up to the door and began examining the array of padlocks. Suddenly a bolt shot. The massive door began to swing open and something reached out at him from within. He gasped, terrified, and jumped back, but not before something clutched the bone, yanked it out of his hand, and back into the darkness within. The door slammed shut with a clang that rang in our ears as we ran away. Wait, what? Something? Reached out at him. Come on, Rosenbaum. What are you doing here? Don't you mean some dude, some member of Skull of Bones reached out and grabbed the bone? Or, or, did, you, or did you see a fucking monster? A demon? A wraith? Come on, you saw some normal-ass college guy's arm. But you flowered up the language, you darkened it all when you wrote your article to help get it published. Come on! Years later, in April of 1977, Rosenbaum set out to see just how secure the secrets of Skull and Bones were. Uh, Based on his age, I assume the previous story uh, happened around 1966. He was born in 1946. And now in 1977, he decided to uh, spend the week of tap night and initiation night in New Haven, asking questions, seeing what he can find out. He said he wouldn't ask the Bonesman directly to share any secrets. Didn't want to let them know he was in the area, but he would ask around, see if they had slipped any info to an outsider. Rosenbaum said he only left out information that could be easily traced back to its source in his publication. Some of his sources expressed fear of retaliation, and Rosenbaum was warned that three Bonesmen were on the board of his bank and that he would never get a line of credit again if he shared too much. Come on. How is that a threat? I mean, if they fuck with his line of credits, uh, whatever could he possibly do? I don't know. Maybe easily withdraw all of his money, put it in one of so many other banks the same fucking day, apply for a new line of credit, and then just casually move on with his life. Risking his precious line of credit. Rosenbaum, the brave, the courageous. He pushed forward and he obtained uh, uh, annotated floor plans and a dossier, excuse me, on rituals compiled by another secret society that did contain information on a 1940 supposed uh, Bonesman ritual. New man placed in coffin, carried into central part of building. New man chanted over and reborn into society, removed from coffin and given robes with symbols on it. A bone with his name on it, tossed into the bone heap at the start of every meeting. Initiates plunged naked into mud pile. <laughs> plunged naked into the mud pile. Did the skull and bones haze initiates uh, homoerotically? like so many other frats have done for their entire fucking histories prior to the past few decades. New World Order or same old frat boy shit? Uh, Rosenbaum kept watch on April 15th, 1977, Tap Night. Uh, He wrote that 15 seniors from all the secret societies would go to the rooms of the tapis and knock on the doors. When the person opened the door, specifically for Skull and Bones, they would slam them on the shoulder, ask them, uh, Skull and Bones, do you accept If the candidate said yes, they would receive a message wrapped in black ribbon and sealed in black wax with the emblem, which gives them a time and place for their initiation. The following Tuesday, they would be instructed to wear no medal. Okay. Uh, Rosenbaum followed two young men who seemed like they were on their way to tap somebody. He heard that the initiates were taken to a ceremony at a different location before the initiation. Eventually, the two men got into a car and drove off, and Rosenbaum chose not to follow. What? Come on, Rosenbaum, you silly bitch. What are you doing? investigating a group like this when you scare so easily. On April 20th, Rosenbaum said he returned to the tomb to try to watch the initiate. Uh, he saw the first initiate approach the door just before 8 p.m. The doors opened. The young man held his hands up like someone was pointing a gun at him. Uh, Rosenbaum's source informed him that earlier the initiate was led, led blindfolded to a Bones house and taken to the basement. Two older members dressed in skeleton suits made him swear an oath to keep the initiation secret. 
The initiate would then go through some sort of initiation ceremony in the tomb, followed by another initiation ceremony involving the, the coffin in room 322. The initiation was referred to as the death of the initiate. He was told each member has to complete an intense two-part confessional experience. On Thursday, the new member tells their life story. On Sunday, they then give details about their sexual history. In recent years, female initiates have uh, leaked complaints about that part of joining. One woman said, I objected to 14 guys knowing whether I was a good lay. <laughs> yeah. It was like after that, each of them thought I was his woman in some way. Yeah, that's creepy. Uh, now I'm picturing male members just jerking off <laughs> while the female members in the coffin talking about our sex life. Uh, yes. Oh, uh, yes. Tell us more. We, we want to bond with you. Uh, but yeah, probably fucking pretty creepy. Uh, the bones would not accepting, uh, start accepting women until the 1990s. Bones started admitting Jewish people in the early 1950s, black people in 1949. Supposedly homosexual members began to be accepted around 1977. Once a member Rosenbaum was told by an anonymous source that each initiate reportedly received a no strings gift of $15,000 from the Russell trust association, RTA, the corporation that owns the tomb and other skull and bones property. And he heard rumors that they would be guaranteed a secure income for life. Another anonymous source told Rosenbaum that the society would help a downtrodden member with interest-free loans, but the only outright contribution they would receive was the $15,000. In the late summer before senior year starts, Rosenbaum was told the new initiates would visit Deer Island. Uh, Deer Island lies in the St. Lawrence River, bordering New York and Canada. Uh, it's roughly, uh, Deer Island is roughly 40 private acres inside the city limits of the town of Alexandria. A town of about 4,000 people, very, very hoity-toity looking area based on pictures, very scenic and quaint, reeks of uh, old money, again, just based on looking at pics online. And the island is owned by the uh, RTA, the business name for the Skull and Bones Society, established by Bones co-founder, William Russell. According to a 2016 filing with the IRS, the Russell Trust Association has assets of just under $4 million, which includes the so-called tomb at Yale. Also, according to the IRS filing, the association engages in educational programs, structured programs of intellectual inquiry, sensitivity training and personal development for students of Yale University, focusing on topics of intellectual, political, or cultural importance. Recent topics have included homeland security, corporate governance, and U.S. international relations. Uh, Rosenbaum wrote there, hidden among the Thousand Islands, the reborn initiate truly finds himself on an isle of the blessed. For there, on this place called Deer Island, are assembled the active Bones alumni and their families. And there he gets a sense of how many powerful establishment institutions are run by wonderful, civilized, silver-haired Bonesmen, eager to help the initiate's establishment dreams come true. He can also meet the wives of Bonesmen of all ages and get a sense of what kind of woman is most acceptable and appropriate in Bones society, and perhaps even meet that most acceptable of all types of women, the daughter of a Bonesman. And again, this is written back in 1977. Uh, yeah, sounds like a fucking incredible networking opportunity. Got a lot of those uh, Bonesman daughters, powerful, wealthy, and, uh, you know, pretty fucking cool. Uh, 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 excuse me, Rosenbaum also reported that he seemed to have found definite, if skeletal, links between the origins of Bones rituals and those of the notorious Bavarian Illuminists. Yeah, totally. We already, uh, we went over that. Mm -hmm. They are linked, you know, barely to the Illuminati. Uh, Rosenbaum also discovered the file in claw break-in pamphlet in a box of documents in the library's manuscript room under the Russell Trust Association. Now, what is this? Uh, a group called the Order of the File and Claw broke into the tomb in 1876. There's been numerous secret societies that have come and gone and they recorded what they found and that'll be discussed more in the timeline, what they found. 
Uh, for now, the file and claw wrote, Bones is a chapter of a core of a German university. It should properly be called the Skull and Bones chapter. General Russell, its founder, was in Germany before his senior year and formed a warm friendship with a leading member of a German society. The meaning of the permanent number 322 in all Bones literature is that it was founded in 1832 uh, as the second chapter of the German society. So, you know, 32 and then the second, 322. Uh, but the Bonesman has a pleasing fiction that his fraternity is a descendant of an old Greek patriot society founded by Demosthenes, or Demosthenes, who died in 332, Jesus, 322 BCE. Uh, the group described a German slogan painted on the walls above the vault of room 322, which appears above a painting of skulls surrounded by Masonic symbols. The picture is reportedly a gift of the German chapter. In English, the slogan means, who was the fool? Who was the wise man, beggar or king? Whether poor or rich, all's the same in death. Yeah, no, that's true. Make all the money you want, you can't take it with you. In the end, we're all ground into the exact same kind of dust. Time, time, time always wins. Except for me, of course. Uh, I have plans of becoming a very cool robot. I'll have you know. Hurry the fuck up, Tesla. It's going to be hard for me to transform into some kind of Terminator Skynet bot if you wait until I'm too old to get, you know, uh, all the robots up and running. Anyway, Rosenbaum found this same slogan in a 1798 Scottish anti-illuminist tract. The tract has excerpts from alleged illuminist ritual manuals confiscated by the Bavarian police when the Illuminati was, you know, shut down in 1785. Uh, Towards the end of the initiation ceremony, quote, a skeleton is pointed out to the initiate at the feet of which are laid a crown and sword. He is asked whether that is the skeleton of a king, nobleman, or a beggar. As he cannot decide, the president of the meeting says to him, The character of being a man is the only one that is of importance. Okay, so they copied some old Illuminati shit. Cool. And, you know, pretty cool little uh, uh, ritual there. Uh, Rosenbaum described a photo of the altar room of a Masonic lodge in Nuremberg. The photo shows an aisle of hanging human skeletons. And at the altar, there was a coffin with a skull and crossbones above it. He says, now you can look at this three ways. The Eastern establishment is the demonic creation of a clandestine elite manipulating history. And Skull and Bones is one of its recruiting centers. A more plausible explanation as is that the death's head symbolism was so prevalent in Germany when the impressionable young Russell visited that he just stumbled on the same motherlode of pseudo-Masonic mummery as the Illuminus. Bingo! Uh, the third possibility is that the break-in pamphlets are an elaborate fraud designed by the file and claw crew to pin the taint of Illuminism on bones and the rituals of bones have innocent Athenian themes 322 being only the date of the death of Demosthenes. And that could also be true. Uh, Rosenbaum also wrote that Skull and Bones could be a sort of eugenics project to bring vigorous new genes into elite bloodlines. Uh, Bring on the adrenochrome. Uh, He also wrote that the sexual autobiography may have served some eugenic purpose. And that is just some wild-ass speculation on Rosenbaum's part, uh, based on nothing more than his imagination. After writing his Esquire article, Rosenbaum continued investigating Skull and Bones. Many years later, he and his team recorded uh, an infamous initiation ritual. I'll talk about that later in the timeline, play a little bit. Uh, Rosenbaum explained that the main reason for the public's obsession with the secret society in a 2003 CBS interview saying, I think there is a deep and legitimate distrust in America for power and privilege that are cloaked in secrecy. It's not supposed to be the way we do things. We're supposed to do things out in the open in America. And so that any society or institution that hints that there is something hidden is, I think, a legitimate subject for investigation. Okay, 
I mean, yeah, legitimate uh, subject for investigation somewhat. All right, fine. But are we supposed to do everything out in the open? I don't know about that. Should everyone know uh, what goes on in the government? I know some people think that. I don't think that at all. I think I think a lot of the people that scream the loudest of like, I want to know what's going on there uh, are not mentally capable of handling that information properly, right? And it would fuck over our national security and different things. Uh, should it be a need to know basis? I think it should, right? Companies don't show every uh, share everything that they do with the public. Even if they share transcripts from official meetings, they still don't share everything. Plenty of private conversations are not intended for customers to hear. And that's just how it's always been. I'm pretty transparent, but I don't share every detail of what goes on here with everyone. What don't I share? Well, none of your fucking business. I would argue that there is a level of secrecy to every business, even if it's small, and a level of secrecy to everyone's personal lives as well. Do you share every thought you have to anyone who wants to know it? And I mean every thought, every sexual fantasy, every intrusive, why the fuck am I even thinking this right now thought? Every petty, jealous thought, every judgmental, cruel thought? No, you don't. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, not 100%, you don't. There is an element of secrecy to life. But when you apply that element to groups of people who are powerful, well, now some people cry, conspiracy, reveal your secrets. Right, reminds me of fucking paparazzi who think that, uh, you know, uh, various, you know, high level celebrities just don't have a right to secrecy. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah, could there be a conspiracy? Yeah, there could. But secrecy and power do not equate directly to conspiracy. Alexander Robbins said this about the group's purpose. There's no specific creed that they're supposed to go out and spread. They do have this agenda to further and bolster their superiority complex and to get its members into positions of power and to have those members hire other members into similar positions of power. This theory is supported by the actions of George W. Bush, who nominated or appointed at least 10 bonesmen to positions such as head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, assistant attorney general, general counsel to the Office of Homeland Security, and ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago. But yeah, of course he did. All right. They were the cream of the crop from a school that largely accepts the cream of the crop. They were people he shared a connection with. And I'm sure a lot of this was based on a series of favors. You help me with my campaign. I'll help you get a cushy job later, or I'll help your friend or cousin or whatever. Is that nefarious? Or is that just the same kind of nepotism and networking that has gone on for the entirety of human civilization and will continue to go on? All right. This guy's dad and granddad were in the same group. I'm sure he grew up surrounded by bonesmen. Of course, he's going to have friendships, relationships, appoint some of them. Some of the comics, uh, you know, that I have opened up for me on the road that I picked them because I scoured the comedic landscape for the best up and coming comics, a true meritocracy, or did I give some work to some old friends? In some cases, definitely old friends. Doesn't mean they're not good comics. They are, but they're also old friends. And that's the main reason I picked them. Yeah. People like to work with, you know, who they like. And also what the, what the Alexander doesn't say there is that Bush appointed even more non-bonesmen to other important positions. Uh, when Tim Russert from Meet the Press asked George Bush about Skull and Bones in February of 2002, he said, it's so secret we can't talk about it. When Russert asked John Kerry in August of 2003 what it meant that he and George Bush were both members, he said, not much because it's a secret. Uh, Dan Oldenburg wrote for the Washington Post in 2003. Some critics say Bones produces elitist leaders who are myopic on America's social and economic challenges. Others argue that for potential candidate, that for presidential candidates to profess loyalty to a secret society, particularly one that for a time didn't admit minorities and women, that is contrary to democratic principles. Oh, come on. That's doing, that's doing some fucking presentism there where it's like, oh, particularly one that for a time didn't admit minorities and women. None of them did that. Back in the 19th century, literally none of these ones, like these fraternal organizations. 
So to single out this one and act like it's, you know, contrary to democratic principles, that's like saying, well, all of America was contrary to democratic principles for a time. Uh, Bill Minutaglio, oh man, my God, Bill, Italian last name, uh, Minutaglio, Minutaglio, uh, <laughs> by the way, before I go further, I did see, I, I check again, like review sometimes to get a feel for like the pulse of what people are thinking. And there was a recent one on a uh, Apple podcast about time suck. And it was a very Italian name. And I <laughs> did not care reference the Amanda Knox episode. Fucking hated my guts. And because I did the Italiano Voessa, uh, just called me a racist. I thought that was hilarious. It's like, or a silly goose. Um, uh, but Bill, journalist and author of First Son, George W. Bush and the Bush Family Dynasty, told the Washington Post, it is really by definition an extremely exclusive club for the wealthy and connected. Put all that together and suddenly in the year 2004, realize that two men who are running for the most important office on the planet Earth come out of the exact same mausoleum and it should give you pause and reason to think about what it means to be privileged, enabled and protected in the United States. George W. Bush's financing of his first oil company, his partnership owning the Texas Rangers and the money behind his campaigns were supported by Skull and Bones, according to Bill. George W. went from being a self-described good time Charlie to president of the United States, largely with the help of an inner circle of his parents, friends, his own trusted pals and brothers from Yale Skull and Bones. All right. Fucking so what? Also, uh, John Kerry, who he ran against, had a bunch of Yale Skull and Bones buddies. And George received more than 3 million votes than Kerry. His old buddies would not have gotten him elected if he also didn't have charisma and intelligence, some good ideas. I mean, come on. This argument that like... uh, President, even the presidents I've liked the least, I never think they're fucking stupid, like just super dumb. Uh, I don't know. Everyone who gets elected president gets lots of help. Does it really matter if it comes from the skull and bones or not? Now let's look at some skull and bones initiation rituals and society rules. Uh, reportedly, Henry Luce, the man who founded Time Magazine, Life, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated magazines, someone called the most influential private citizen in the America of his day, laid naked in a coffin and talked about his sex life during his initiation. And that is pretty hilarious to me. If I could have gotten classmates to lay naked in coffins and talk about their sex lives, I probably would have wanted to start a secret club, right? Just to uh, pull that off for sheer entertainment value. Uh-huh. And how long did you last? I, should, I feel like I need the music for this. And how long did you last, Henry? Five minutes? Are you sure about that? Do we need to call and ask her, Henry? 45 seconds. That's more like it. And when you were done, you did put your hand on your penis and then quickly thrust that same hand into your mouth and sucked off all the moisture before burping and shouting, Delicious mother, may I please have another helping before I go to bed, didn't you? I mean, all of us have done that. It is the normal thing to do and you are a normal boy, aren't you, Henry? I see. You forgot. But now that you think about it, you do remember doing that. Excellent. Hey, Hank. I was fucking kidding about that. That was really, really weird, right? That was weird that you just admitted to uh, doing that uh, from the coffin of truth. That's going to the book. No changing it. Uh-uh, uh, no, no, no. Your new nickname is Mommy Dick Juice. And there will be no changing that. Not here in the skull and bones. Uh, 1937, later Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart allegedly dressed up as a skeleton and howled wildly, excuse me, howled wildly at a fellow initiate, McGeorge Bundy. U.S. National Security Advisor to Kennedy and Johnson uh, allegedly wrestled naked in a mud pie. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. A couple hot, hard, skull and bones father daddies covered in Yale mud and the wrestling. All said to be part of the initiation to the Skull and Bones Society. Uh, the two main sources of information for this section are, uh, once again, Alexander Robinson, Ron Rosenbaum. Uh, 
Robin said she reached out to more than 300 bonesmen. Uh, only 100 roughly spoke to her. Few of them were willing to be identified. Ron cited disenchanted girlfriends of members as the main source of his info. It's pretty funny. Uh, Alexandra said she received harassment and threats while working on her book. She claimed she got a call from a bonesman who warned her, there are a lot of us in journalism and political institutions across the country. Good luck with your career. And that is creepy. Uh, That does make me wonder, you know, what the fuck are they hiding? Something really shady, some global conspiracy, or do some members just not want the public to know, uh, you know, what they were talking about when they were fucking naked in a coffin, going over their uh, sexcapades or, you know, mud wrestling with some other dude nude. Not all the details of the initiation ceremony are clear, but from what we do know, it seems as if it involves an elaborate game of dress up with fake murders and skull kissing. Uh, The initiation allegedly starts in room 322, uh, excuse me, referred to as the inner temple or the sanctum sanctorum. Blocked off by a locked iron door inside the room is a case containing a skeleton nicknamed Madame Pompadour. Compartments in the case. I know I'm giving different versions here because it's just based on what different people have said. Uh, compartments in the case also hold different manuscripts like the secrecy oath and the initiation instructions. Uh, according to Alexander Robbins, some patriarchs, members who have already graduated, participate in the initiation. One of them serves as the supervisor called Uncle Toby. The inner temple is cleared out except for two chairs and a table. Uncle Toby wears a robe. Fucking love the name Uncle Toby. It speaks to me about how this is all just a silly game. Uh, the shortest member dresses as the little devil. One bonesman dresses as Don Quixote. Another in papal clothing, another as Elihu Yale, four as so-called shakers, and the rest wear skeleton costumes. And the initiation script states that Uncle Toby should sound like the only sane person in the room. (laughs) This is some great absurd theater. When When an initiate enters the room, the patriarch standing outside 322 shout, who is it? The shakers then yell the initiate's name, Bobby, and the patriarch repeats it. The shakers push the initiate towards the table. The initiate is ordered to read it. The initiate is taken to a picture of their fake goddess, uh, Elugia, or excuse me, uh, Eul- it's a made up fucking word, Eulogia, and the members shout, Eulogia, Eulogia, Eulogia. Uh, the initiate goes back to the oath, and then they're taken to a picture of a woman called, uh, c- excuse me, Canubial, Canubial Bliss. I've never read Canubial uh, before this word. Canubial is kind of similar to, uh, oh my gosh, uh, when you get a conjugal, there we go, conjugal. Canubial Bliss means happily married. At one point, the initiate kisses the Pope's toe. At the end of the ceremony, the initiate becomes a knight of eulogia. Alexander Robbins further describes the initiation ceremony to CBS saying, there's a devil, a Don Quixote, and a Pope who has one foot sheathed and a white monogram slipper resting on a stone skull. Uh, so the initiates are led into the room one at a time. And once an initiate is inside, the bonesmen shriek at him. Finally, the bonesman is shoved to his knees in front of Don Quixote as the shrieking crowd falls silent. And Don Quixote lifts his sword and taps the bonesman on his left shoulder and says, By order of our order, I dub thee Knight of Eulogia. After the initiation ceremony, each member gets uh, one Sunday night to recount their sexual history. That ritual is called CB, uh, meaning connubial bliss. Uh, Some reports do (laughs) do say that members masturbate in the coffin while telling their sexual history. Others say they just lay in the coffin and talk. God, if they're masturbating, that would be a reason for some high-ranking officials to not want their secrets to get out, right? To not want the <laughs> general public to hear about how they jerked off in a fucking coffin surrounded by a bunch of disguised classmates dressed up as skeletons and popes and shit, you know, maybe while crying and confessing to being completely unfuckable or something. That's, that's going to cost you some votes. Can you cry and masturbate at the same time, by the way, actually? 
I've never done that one. What a strange mixture of feelings that would be. I'm, I'm so sad, but I'm so horny too. What if you could only get horny if you were also sad? Man, what a mind fuck. Uh, anyway, after their sexual history, each member gets a chance to tell their life history to uh, life history or LH. The members swear that they will keep everything they hear a secret, which allows the members to be vulnerable and share their deepest secrets. And that does sound like some Scientology shit, right? Is this a way to, to build deep trust or to gain future blackmail material? You know, I guess it could be both. 6.30 p.m. on Thursdays and Sundays, the group meets for dinner. Skull and Bones supposedly has a strict dry society rule, which means they don't drink during meetings in the tomb. Interestingly, the tomb runs five minutes ahead of real time. According to one member, it was to encourage you to think that being in the building was so different from the outside world that you would let your guard down. Really? Does having a clock run five minutes off accomplish that? Huh. At 7.55, Uncle Toby rings a bell to signal the start of the session. The new members sing sacred anthems followed by the hearing of excuses where members are given fines for errors. Uncle Toby then draws debate topics and the order of speakers from a skull. Spooky. One bonesman said about the CB, uh, Canubial Bliss, after the first one or two times, it's like guys listing their conquests and it gets old. Uh, Another said, there's just not that much to talk about. It's the kind of stuff a lot of guys do with their teammates. There was nothing perverse or surreal or prurient, just an open exchange. Everyone has shared their CB by mid-autumn, so then sessions switch over to life histories. Uh, One source told Alexander Robbins that George H.W. Bush talked about his military service and also about his family and his future in his life history primarily. Uh, George W. Bush talked a lot about his dad. Not what you think of him. There is a uh, video on YouTube of him speaking at his father's funeral. And I will say it is extremely touching. Uh, Ken Cohen, fellow member. uh, He did love his dad. Fellow member of Skull and Bones class or does. Sorry. Ken Cohen, a fellow member of Skull and Bones class of 68 with President Bush, also recalled that George W. was very vulnerable during his talk, saying George was very feeling and sensitive at a time when that wasn't quite in vogue yet. Uh, Alexander Robbins wrote that uh, new members receive secret names. Some of them receive traditional names denoting function or existential status. Others receive names chosen by their predecessors. Some choose their own names. Uh, the tallest member, often called Long Devil, <laughs> varsity football captain, would be called Boaz. Other nicknames come from literature, religion, myths. Magog is the man with the most sexual experience, and Gog is the member with the least. Oh, man, it's a bummer to be Gog, I guess. Well, unless that's what you want. Uh, William Howard Taft, George H.W. Bush were both Magogs. Okay. George W. Bush chose the nickname Temporary because he struggled to choose a name. Pretty funny. Uh, Temporary, better than Gog. Uh, New members must swear total allegiance to the group, and there are rumors that they must agree to give part of their estates to the Skull and Bones. If they do this, they are promised lifelong financial stability, which motivates them to not spill any secrets, according to Robbins. And again, we're hearing different accounts of what these things may be. Robbins told CBS, I believe the point of the year in the tomb is to forge such a strong bond between these 15 new members that after they graduate, for them to betray Skull and Bones would be to betray their 14 closest friends. After the initiations, new members spend a week with patriarchs on Deer Island. They really fucked up naming that island. They should have worked on, you know, a more conspiratorial sounding name, really get people riled up more with something like Eve's Garden or the Serpent Pit, the Isle of 33 Demons, you know, something like that. Uh, Let's learn a bit more about the island now. Deer Island, a country retreat on the river. It was once a venue for tennis and other gatherings, but uh, is now reportedly in disrepair. Uh, Robbins wrote about Deer Island saying Skull and Bones doesn't own an opulent island hideaway like the one depicted in the Skulls film. 
It does own an island on the St. Lawrence River, Deer Island, Alexandria Bay. The 40-acre retreat is intended to give Bonesmen an opportunity to get together and rekindle old friendships. How scandalous. A century ago, the island supported tennis courts and its softball fields were surrounded by rhubarb plants and gooseberry bushes. Cat boats waited on the lake. Stewards catered elegant meals. But although each new Skull and Bones member still visits Deer Island, the place leaves something to be desired. Uh, a, a patriarch size, ah, now it's just a bunch of burned out stone, burned out stone buildings. It's basically ruins. Another Bonesman says that uh, to call the island rustic would be to glorify it. It's a dump, but it's beautiful. If it really is in that much disrepair, how powerful are these guys? Or is it in disrepair? Or just made to look that way? Uh, it would be cool to find out that inside the supposedly dilapidated building is like a fucking tunnel to some secret opulent underground lair. Uh, but if that was built, I would think that someone who uh, worked on it would have talked already. They should do that now. They should secretly build some crazy ritual palace, you know, situation, some some big thing underground, uh, decorated with cages full of what looks like children's skeletons, have an area that looks like a laboratory where some liquid-filled vials are labeled adrenochrome, have a closet full of torturous-looking BDSM sex toys, a bunch of gimp outfits in the closet, too. If they did that, someone would break in and document it, and sadly, there would probably be assassination attempts over that, people trying to kill Bonesman. So maybe, maybe don't do that. Maybe our culture is not ready to make those kind of jokes yet. Uh, before we jump into the timeline now, let's go over who gets picked in a bit more detail. Every year, the new members' names are published in the Yale Daily News. Historically, uh, decades ago, the most common types of people who are tapped are the football captain, star players, editor of the Yale Daily News, a Whiffenpoof, member of Yale's acapella group. Oh my God, that is the most Yaley name, a Whiffenpoof. Uh, what group do you belong to? Oh, I'm a Whiffenpoof. <laughs> I picture if you're a whiffin proof, a whiffin a whiffin poof, like you don't even walk. You just have some kind of elitist prancing that you do to get to places. You definitely know which fork to use at any point during any given meal. Uh, star swimmers, hockey players, fraternity presidents, campus leaders. Uh, tradition dictates that the last person tapped is the outstanding man in the class. Back in 1882, the Skull and Bones reportedly had different quotas. Uh, two members had to be from the Yale Literary Magazine, a couple from the baseball, football, or boating teams. And uh, at least one person set for high scholarship. In an article for the 1968 yearbook, 1967 graduate Lanny Davis, future White House special counsel during the Clinton administration, wrote about the group's quotas saying, if the society had a good year, this is what the ideal group will consist of. A football captain, a chairman of the Yale Daily News, a conspicuous radical, a whiffenpoof, <laughs> a swimming captain, a notorious drunk with a 94 average, funny, filmmaker, a political columnist, a religious group leader, a chairman of the lit, a foreigner, a ladies' man with two motorcycles, an ex-serviceman, and remember this is his words, old-timey language, uh, a Negro if there, are, if there are enough to go around. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, a guy nobody else in the group had heard of ever. Uh, and it was always dudes. And that's the way most Bonesmen wanted it. It was a frat house more than anything. In 1991, when the members voted to admit women, a group of patriarchs, so right, so former, uh, you know, members, but, you know, still members, but no longer students, led by political commentator William F. Buckley Jr., changed the fucking locks on the tomb and suspended operations for a year. Wow. For the majority of its history, Skull and Bones was considered a male wasp stronghold, according to FedEx founder and Bonesman Frederick Smith and Alexander Robbins. Skull and Bones has initiated Jewish people since the 30s, black and LGBTQ people since the 60s, but only in token numbers until more recent years. Yale first admitted women in 1969 
And in 1971, uh, Skull and Bones members attempted to start tapping women in a non-sexual, like, uh, welcome to the club way. But patriarchs threatened to close down the tomb for a year, as he talked about, chose the members themselves. Uh, 1991, the patriarchs did shut down the tomb, right, to rebuff the class's intention to tap women, but women were still allowed in that year. While there are plenty of women in the club now, the power of this club and other Ivy League secret societies seems to have waned. Yale historian and professor uh, emeritus of history and bonesman Gaddis Smith told the New York Times in 1991 that up until the mid-50s, all juniors wanted to be in a secret society and there were students who felt that life was over if they didn't get accepted into a society. Uh, in the modern age, tap night doesn't seem to have much effect on the majority of the students. Of uh, 374 Yale students who responded to a poll from the Yale Daily News in 2008, 75% of them said they would consider joining or already were a member of a senior society. But one out of three respondents said they found the society system less relevant to the social scene than they originally thought. Some seniors actually decline taps because they feel that they're already too busy and they want to spend time with, uh, you know, established friends. Pretty funny. Fun, pretty funny to imagine someone getting a very dramatic skull and bones tap, right? Just some dude in a fucking mask and a, uh, you know, uh, robe. Just walk him. Do you accept? And then the potential recruit is just like, ah, get the fuck out of here, weirdo. I'm trying to finish watching Better Call Saul. I got shit to do on Thursdays and Sundays. I have fun in your tomb. And then the bummed out dude in the cult robe just sadly shuffles back to the temple. This is not how I envisioned it. Uh, Yale Daily News notes that this recent lack of interest is partially explained by a shift on campus to juniors becoming student leaders, while seniors are more focused on graduation and finding a job. And I would think thanks to the web and the rise of influencers and online entrepreneurship, maybe less interest in networking through old boys clubs, uh, excuse me, more interest in kind of carving out your own unique path. Uh, Those who are interested uh, look a lot different than they used to. Buster Brown wrote for The Atlantic in 2013. For generations, the organization's alumni corps had granted a a coterie, I should have looked how to pronounce that, of white, privileged, predominantly heterosexual men easier entry into the upper echelons of American society. But that was then. More recently, the organization has become the antithesis of what it was when Carrie joined uh, in 1966. Racist, sexist, elitist practices have been jettisoned in a rush towards more egalitarian standards. Yale's famous old boys club has become a melange of minorities, genders, and sexual identities that's less dynastic and more dynamic than ever. In 2010, for the first time ever, Bones tapped more ethnic minorities than white people. In 2011, they tapped two gay students, a bisexual student, a transgender student. In 2012, men and women were even in the society for the first time. The Atlantic reported that Bones members seek out diversity. One Bones woman saying, some of us wanted to undo certain attitudes of the past. We wanted to actively negate them. In 1964, the year of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, Bones did not tap a black student, which caused future Senator Joe Lieberman to decline his invitation. The following year, in 1965, Bones inducted Ord Combs, a black Yale student. Barrington Daniels Parker Jr., one of his classmates, told The Atlantic, Skull and Bones wanted to tap campus leaders, and Ord was a big man on campus. After his induction, uh, most of the classes of Bonesmen began to, uh, you know, tap black students every year. Okay, dokie. So now it's time to jump into our timeline. Uh, look at some of the most significant events in Skull and Bones history before finally bringing back the idiots of the internet segment. So here we go. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Starting off in 1832, the year Skull and Bones uh, was founded by junior Yale students. Uh, 
Founding members of the Skull and Bone Society were all attending Yale during the 1832-1833 school year. There were William Huntington Russell, who we mentioned, Alfonso Taft, who we've also mentioned, uh, Frederick Ellsworth Mather, uh, Phineas Timothy Miller, and George Ingersoll Wood. Primary co-founder, William Huntington Russell, who we met again, uh, uh, lived from 1809 to 1885. He was a businessman, educator, and politician, most well-known as a founder of the Skull and Bone Society. This Illuminati white devil uh, was born in Middleton, Connecticut, or Middletown. I jumped a letter there, and was one of 13 children. His father, Matthew Talcott Russell, was a justice of the peace, served as state's attorney for Middlesex County, and the Middleton Middletown, excuse me, treasurer, uh, one of Russell's ancestors, the Reverend Noah Dyer. Noah Dyer. Oh boy, <laughs> that's a name. Uh, do you get to say that casually? I'm Noah Dyer. Or when you're introduced, you're like, Noah Dyer uh, was one of the founders, the original trustees of Yale College. Uh, Russell was a cadet at Aldine Partridge's American Literary, Scientific, and Military Academy, later named Norwich University or Norwich from 1826 to 1828. Following his graduation in true Illuminati fashion, Russell worked as a teacher in Princeton, New Jersey, and then became a tutor at Yale. 1836, he opened a private prep school for boys, which would be named the New Haven Collegiate and Commercial Institute. Russell later went back to Yale and graduated from the School of Medicine as an MD. In the 1840s, Russell, sensing that a civil war was coming, started to prepare the boys at his school with strict military discipline, and some of them were later enlisted as drill instructors. Russell was also hired by Governor William Alfred Buckingham, or Buckingham, to organize the Connecticut militia and became a major general in 1862. Also in the 1840s, Russell was a member of the Whig Party in the Connecticut legislature. After the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in 1854, he became active in the movement that would end with the creation of the Republican Party. Uh, This evil Skull and Bones co-founder was a strong abolitionist who was friends with John Brown, the famed abolitionist. He was named as a trustee in John's will. Brown literally died due to his fight to free enslaved men and women in America. And Russell was one of his best buddies. Fighting to free the oppressed. The real Illuminati. Alfonso Taft, the other co-founder, lived from 1810 to 1891. He was a jurist, diplomat, politician, attorney general and secretary of war, and father of President William Howard Taft. Alfonso, born in Townshend, Vermont, his family was not particularly wealthy. He worked as a teacher to earn money to attend Amherst Academy. And while studying at Amherst, he and Samuel Colt, founder of Colt's Patent Firearms Manufacturing Company, allegedly once stole a cannon and shot it at the school. There's a story there, but I couldn't figure it out from sources. Uh, Taft attended uh, Yale in 1829. That's when he began. After graduation, he worked as a teacher at Ellington, Connecticut, then studied law at Yale's Law School and was admitted to the Connecticut Bar in 1838. In 1839, he moved to Cincinnati, would become one of the most influential people in the young state of Ohio. He would become a member of the boards of trustees for three colleges, University of Cincinnati, uh, Antioch College, and Yale College. Taft was chosen as the Secretary of War in 1876 by Ulysses S. Grant. He was also appointed U.S. Attorney General, later served as U.S. Minister to Austria-Hungary and U.S. Minister to Imperial Russia. So, you know, did a lot of stuff. George Ingersoll Wood was a congressionalist clergyman, born in Stamford, Connecticut in 1814. After graduating from Yale and the Union Theological Seminary, he served as pastor of several churches in Connecticut and died in January of 1899 in Washington, D.C. Phineas Timothy Miller lived a short life, born in 1810, died in 1850, born in Middletown, Connecticut after graduation, made director of the New Haven Hospital, where he practiced medicine until 1849, at which point he sailed to California 
And then he came down with some dysentery and blew his fucking butthole off in a matter of speaking and died in the ship in February of 1850 and was buried at sea. Frederick Ellsworth Masworth, uh, Frederick, sorry, my sinuses are messing with me terribly right now. Uh, Frederick Ellsworth Mather lived from 1809 to 1900. He was a military officer, lawyer, and philanthropist. Born in Windsor, Connecticut, he was a descendant of Richard Mather. Finally, some dick. The grandfather to famous minister Cotton Mather and grandson of the sister of Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth. Frederick's father died when he was five years old, raised by his grandpa on a, on a farm. 1829, he started working in the office of Ellington Judge Miller, uh, but he wanted to go to college and was admitted to Yale. He studied law after graduation in Hartford, Connecticut, then attended the Yale Law School. In the 1830s and 40s, he served in the New York State Infantry, eventually working his way up to general. In 1845, he became a member of the New York State Assembly and later a member of the Common Council, excuse me, of New York City. He was a philanthropist who worked as an officer of the Prison Association, the Association for Improving the Condition of the Poor, the Sanitary Association, and the Rose Beneficent Association, plus others. Also served as president of the DeMilt Dispensary from 1851 to 1899, one of the originators of the New York uh, Yale Alumni Association, and died of paralysis at his home in New York City after being unable to leave the house for six years. Another founder who did a lot of philanthropy, of course, to hide the real heinous shit he was doing. Uh, But seriously, the founders of Skull and Bones, uh, yeah, did not seem to lead nefarious lives, like, uh, at all. Skull and Bones founder William H. Russell, member of the prestigious honor society Phi Kappa Beta during the 1832-1833 school year, uh, Russell was secretary of the chapter. Uh, I mentioned that earlier. He was unhappy that a prominent undergraduate scholar named uh, Elazar Kingsbury Foster, or Eleazar, it's an odd name again, <laughs> a lot of uh, names that are not common today now, uh, was left out of the elections to PBK and Russell condemned PBK because of that, took Foster under his wing, then joined with 13 additional students, the two of them, to form the Skull and Bones Society. So formed because of an honor society snub, in essence. How how devilish. The organization was originally called the Eulogian Club. And I have to think if they would have kept that name, the Eulogian Club, there would be little to no conspiracies about these guys today. Like even if literally everything else was the same. How far has the name Skull and Bones gone towards, you know, working people up? Especially people who might be a little more paranoid and conspiratorial than the average bear. Uh, Eulogia is a Greek word meaning a blessing. The name Skull and Bones came about during the first year when a member put a meeting notice on the chapel door, the normal spot for undergraduate announcements. The member sketched over the notice a skull and crossbones simply to attract attention and make a sensation among outsiders, which it did very decidedly as written by this member. Yeah, kudos to that dude. I wonder if his spirit is somehow sentient and aware of what's going on in this world right now. Is he laughing his ass off, right? About how much hysteria his little sketch has caused. This action led to others on campus referring to the secret society as the Skull and Bones Society. And the symbol was adopted as the group's badge with the addition of the number 322. And many believe, as I uh, said, that the number 322 symbolizes the death of Demosthenes, which marked a turning point in the history of Athens from a democracy to a plutocracy. So less occulty and nefarious, more of a, you know, kind of a dorky historical reference. Yeah, pretty cool one, actually. But, you know, uh, Demos- Demosthenes, uh, born in 384 BC in Athens, died on October 12, 322 BCE, considered one of the greatest orators of ancient Greece. Demosthenes was a contemporary of Plato and Aristotle, came from wealthy family, uh, established a career as a speechwriter, 
Britannica writes, Demosthenes' career is virtually the history of Athenian foreign policy. It was not very long before his oratorical skill made him, in effect, the leader of what today might be called the Democratic Party. In the 320s, Demosthenes was convinced of, uh, convicted of stealing 20 talents. He escaped from prison, was then exiled. But the next year after Alexander the Great's death, he was recalled by the Athenians. He fled the city uh, again during the, approach, uh, during the approach of Alexander's successor and quickly ingested poison and died of suicide rather than be executed. According to Bones' legend, a Greek goddess known as Eulogia ascended into heaven when Demosthenes died in 322 BCE and did not return until 1832 CE when the goddess resided now uh, with this, within the Skull and Bones Society. Bonesman refer, it's very much like our Lucifina. <laughs> Bonesman referred to the first miracle of the origin of our goddess and the arrival as the equally miraculous transmigration of her spirit to Yale College 2,154 years after her birth. And this association with a god other than the Christian god has undoubtedly led to a lot of conspiratorial accusations. There is a belief in many churches, I would argue all churches, although I'm sure there are some who identify as Christians who don't believe this, that worshiping or glorifying any god or goddess, made up or not, outside of the Christian god is essentially satanic and and a form of sinful idolatry. And if a group is satanic in this respect, well, then there's no telling, you know, what they're up to. Any manner of evil and wickedness. Also, I've said fake goddess. There uh, was no Greek goddess, to be very clear, known as eulogia. And uh, again, eulogia, Greek for, for blessing. The word was occasionally used in early times to signify the Holy Eucharist, also known as Holy Communion, uh, you know, an object that has been blessed. So they're not really worshiping anything. It's all symbolic. They're uh, revering a blessing. And why the association with Demosthenes? Famed Roman statesman Cicero said of him, he stands alone among all the orators. Also praised him as the perfect orator who lacked nothing. And he also bravely opposed the rule of Alexander the Great over his home of Athens. He believed Athenian democracy, superior to Macedonian law, right? Gave his life essentially because of standing up for uh, standing up against uh, Alexander. So maybe the early members of Skull and Bones aspired to be well-spoken, brave champions of democracy. Abolitionists, intellectuals, standing up for the downtrodden. Maybe they championed a type of uh, one world government that I could get behind. Uh, okay, shortly after being founded, Yale decided to try and shut down their new secret society. December 25th, 1833, Yale professors met to determine a proper punishment for the behavior of the members of a convivial meeting. A meeting on Christmas Day must have been serious. Uh, the night before, December 24th, early Bonesmen apparently had held a raucous meeting at the chapel. Nine members of the club of 1834 received warnings and letters were sent to their parents. Two members who had not been formally admitted as members of Yale senior class were told they would not be admitted, but the faculty eventually did let them graduate on time. One memoir from 1872 states that in one incident, the faculty once broke in upon what uh, broke in upon one of the society's meetings and from what they saw determined upon its abolishment, but by the intercession and explanations of its founder, Russell, then serving as a tutor among them, they were inclined to spare it. In 1856, Bonesman and founding president of Johns Hopkins University, Daniel Coit Gilman, incorporated Skull and Bones as the Russell Trust Association. After the incorporation, the Skull and Bones Society paid, the, uh, paid to build the tomb and have a permanent meeting house. Bonesman David A. Richards uh, wrote for Yale alum magazine, in 19th century America, college fraternities were called secret societies, and they met in windowless buildings constructed for that purpose. Or for the you know for the purpose, Richard's name was put on the list of Bones members in the class of '67 graduation book. The first frat house in the U.S. Uh, was a log cabin 
built in 1855 for Delta Kappa Epsilon in Kenyon College, Ohio. The oldest frat house still in existence today is the tomb, uh, built in 1856. The original tomb was just a single rectangular block without any windows. Uh, tomb was the name Richard writes. It attracted when it was built in 1856. And a tomb is what it resembled, even more so than its current remodeled state. It was a single, forbidding, windowless block in Egypto-Doric style. And that, I'm sure, drove a lot of people fucking crazy, right? Why are they uh, meeting in a building with no windows? A building nicknamed the Tomb, no less. The tomb was located across the street from old campus, the original structures of the university. Uh, of the university. Uh, before the construction of the tomb, the members met in rented rooms in commercial buildings around New Haven. Perhaps because the old brick road dorms on the old campus had, quote, sagging low ceilings, billowy floors, cracked walls, and a musty odor. The heat from the coal stoves varied with the fuel supply, and tallow candles and whale oil lamps fouled the air. Professor Benjamin Stillman, class of 1796, is reported to have said that he would not have stabled his favorite horse in such accommodations. That's likely why in 1856, Skull and Bones alumni finally decided to give members their own permanent meeting place. Also, another secret society, the competition, Scroll and Key, had been meeting in a custom penthouse suite in an office building, and the members mocked the quality of the Bones quarters, which were then located on the third floor of an office building. Many of the alumni lived in New Haven. By this point, Bones was well-established, had memorabilia they wanted to preserve. The alumni also knew that secret societies could be unstable and, you know, come to an end any given year, so they wanted to make a permanent institution for Skull and Bones. First, they had to incorporate the club as a trust. They created the Russell Trust Association, which could then hold the title to the Skull and Bones headquarters. Richards wrote, The new building caused a campus sensation. Though its interior features were generally unknown, from its outer facing, the new home of Bones seemed large and sumptuous. As cost was later estimated at about $30,000, the cost of Yale's own first stone building in 1842, the old library, now known as Dwight Hall, had been less. Uh, the building was large, yeah, windowless rectangle, 12-foot-tall iron doors with the society's emblems on them. A pair of blind windows in the back were covered by iron bars. Scuttle holes at the foundation were also barred. Uh, the building was designed by architect Alexander Jackson Davis. The original structure was enlarged in 1883, then again in 1903. Uh, the Bonesmen started using the building March 13th of 1856. The padlocks on the doors had the message, Pass through the sacred pillars of Hercules, then approach the temple. Take the right book in your left hand. Uh, to deter intruders, the padlocks were set up in such a way that if the wrong one was pulled on, or a lock was twisted in the wrong way, a lock was twisted, a warning bell would be set off inside. Members of the society were, still are, discouraged from entering or leaving in front of witnesses. If people are present, each member enters in single file without talking. Another supposed tradition is that bonesmen do not speak when passing in front of the building. Uh, the only public record of what the original building may have looked like inside is a pamphlet with the title, Babylon is Fallen, published in 1876 by a group named the Order of the File and Claw, right? I kind of referenced a bit of what they uh, found earlier. Uh, the group described themselves as neutrals with vulgar eyes of the uninitiated. Uh, they broke into the building, yeah, September of 1876, by getting past the iron netting and iron bars on the back cellar windows. They filed through one of the outside bars and used a powerful claw to pull out the nails that fastened iron netting to a wooden frame. They used putty to put the back bar in place and then retired to await a favorable night for finishing the job. And those guys put more work into getting into the tomb than the guys who stole art in the Gardner heist uh, put in a few weeks ago. Would have been easier for them to break in if Ricky Dick, right, was guarding the tomb and not those iron bars. On September 29th, 1876, at 8 p.m., the group returned. 
pulled out the wooden frame, found that the inside window bars ran into a brick wall on the bottom. They dug through the wall, loosened the iron plate where the bars were attached, pushed the plate inwards, and the bars fell out. They were inside by 10.30 p.m. and, quote, proceeded to examine the temple at our leisure. They noted that the cellar had a kitchen, pantry, sink, and toilet, where a light is always kept burning and was ornamented with a dilapidated human skull. Holy fuck, a human skull? You know, that they could have taken from a morgue or cemetery or medical school. Uh, The main hall, which the initiated called 324, had gaudily frescoed walls. The group noted a used textbook in a glass case containing a large number of gilded baseballs, each inscribed with the date, score, etc. of a university game. The group were disappointed because thus far we had found little to compensate us for our trouble. On the second floor, they found three parlors. Uh, one with a library that had info about other societies. Someone had written ass next to the name of a scroll and key society member. How wicked. The middle room was number 322. It was called the Sanctum Sanctorum. Inside the room was a life-size uh, facsimile of the bones pin handsomely inlaid in the black marble hearth of a fireplace. Below the mantel was a Latin motto inlaid in marble, meaning uh, the good are indeed few. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Order of File and Claw reported that the walls were draped in velvet and allegedly pentagrams were prevalent throughout the tomb. Oh, pentagrams? Oh, my. You mean like the kind of pentagrams that many metal bands have all over their shit today? What evil lurks here? The hallway was lined with pictures of group members. Uh, inside the safe were a bunch of keys and small and a small gold-mounted flask half filled with brandy. They also found a set of memorable books. Uh, kind of a misspelling, I don't know. Uh, for each year and two storerooms uh, with boating flags and foreign language books. They noted a total absence of all the machinery, which we had been led to expect, and concluded through examination of every part of the temple leads us to the conclusion that the most powerful of college societies is nothing more than a convivial club. Uh, sounds about right. My favorite part was the total absence of all the machinery, which we were led to expect. I bet they expected to find cages with fucking skeletons, books uh, on dark magic, candles on the corners of a massive pentagram on the floor, a huge statue of Baphomet, sacrificial dagger with blood still on it, etc. And instead they find a bunch of textbooks and brandy. Over a century later, a group of Yale girls reportedly managed to sneak into the tomb and photograph every ritual room. Ron Rosenbaum claimed that he once viewed these photos. He believes the girls were inspired by his 1977 investigation. Um, I wish they were released to the public, but I can't seem to find them if they had been. One photo supposedly revealed a room with uh, a bunch of state license plates on the walls. How scary. I did find another group of photos supposedly taken of the inside of the Skull and Bones tomb sometime in the late 19th or early 20th century. Another supposed break-in. And they don't reveal anything too spooky. What looks like some mounted deer antlers, uh, old paintings, a stuffy-looking middle-aged wealthy white guys, a big hardwood table with some kind of board game laid out on it, a lot of books, a couple skulls with crossbones painted on the walls, you know, the number 322 painted on the walls, no pentagrams. Honestly, it looks like a frat house for the most boring frat on campus. Uh, John Pogue, former Yale student and, and writer and producer of The Skulls, a 2000 film about Skull and Bones starring Paul Walker and others, told the Baltimore Sun that he once snuck into the tomb and saw a trove of antiques and valuable documents. He said the building was a, a full of maze-like hallways with hidden rooms. One bonesman told journalist Alexandra Robbins, Bones is like a college dorm, dorm room. Ours was a place that used to be uh, really nice, but kind of beat up, lived in. There were socks underneath the couch, uh, old half-deflated soccer balls uh, lying around. Sounds like my son Kyler's bedroom. 
Uh, Robbins wrote dozens of skeletons and skulls, human and animal, dangle from the walls on which German and Latin phrases have been chiseled. Whether poor or rich, all are equal in death. Among moose heads, sconces, medieval armor, antlers, boating flags, manuscripts, statuettes of Demosthenes, and a pair of boots that one member wore through his active duty with American forces in France during World War II. The gravestone of Elihu, uh, Elihu, Elihu Yale, the uh, eponymous 18th century merchant, was um, stolen years ago from its proper setting in Wrexham, Wales, and is displayed in a glass case in a room with purple walls. So, okay. That sounds fun. Rich kids goofing around, getting weird with their friends. Uh, April 15th, 1991, the tomb was closed down while members argued over whether or not to admit women to the society, as I mentioned. Bones directors shut things down, planned to run an ad in the school paper saying that no members will be picked for the 1992 school year. The combination of the door was changed over the weekend to prevent members from entering. Uh, and the director said club operations were suspended for a year after they failed to reach a compromise with Bonesmen who wanted to admit women. Sidney Lovett, secretary of the Russell Trust Association, told the New Haven Register, there is a certain amount of sorrow that the process broke down, but the board felt it had to maintain its control over portions of the process and it would not be backed into a corner. According to Lovett, the current members said they would still follow through on their plans for a co-ed skull and bones, even though they couldn't meet in the tomb. On April 11th, 1991, the students sent a letter to the alumni telling them that waiting for the board to admit women would condemn the society to a slow death on the fringes of the co-ed world. Skull and Bones directors proposed putting the issue to a vote, offered to admit 10 men, 10 women. Uh, the groups would share their emotional and life histories separately, but have debates and eat together. The students rejected that, arguing that men and women can share a common bond. The senior members sent a letter to the alumni saying that they couldn't recruit Yale's best and brightest if women were excluded. In July of 1991, the alumni voted 368 to 320 to admit women. But then a few days before the September induction, a group of alumni filed a suit alleging that the vote was fraudulent. Man, they were fucking hardcore back in their way. Uh, they settled with a new vo vote before the issue went to trial. On October 24th, 1991, the Skull and Bone Society voted again to allow women into the group. Over 125 members entered the tomb for the vote. The alumni who couldn't make it voted by proxy. The New York Times wrote, throughout the evening, clusters of bonesmen emerged from the building, slipped silently through the clamoring reporters and caucused in nearby restaurants and bars before returning to the weighty matter at hand, whether six women should be allowed among the 15-member 1992 delegation. On Friday the 25th, William Prout, a lawyer from the Russell Trust Association, confirmed that women were admitted to Skull and Bones. This would allow the six women and nine men who were chosen in April of 91 to be members of the Skull and Bones Society, one unidentified woman told the Times, it's great, but a little overdue. She said that she really had to think about her decision to join, since almost half of the members did not want her there. Uh, yeah, and that would suck. And I am glad it's integrated, right? Some organizations, frats, sororities, I like that they exclude one gender, right? There is something special about living with members of your own gender, people with biologically more uh, common experiences, I guess now this belief makes me old fashioned, but I, but I like that there are like, you know, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, I don't like it when girls join the Boy Scouts and vice versa. Not every fucking group should be forced to accept everyone in them. That does not feel free to me. It feels contrived, forced, and for lack of a better term, wrong. But the Skull and Bones, I am glad members voted to change things because their traditional principle is to recruit the best of Yale's junior class into membership and to not consider you know any woman to possibly be among the 15 best students. Well, that's pretty obviously, at least to me, fucked up and, you know, it's just like the worst kind of old boys club. Uh, April 23rd, 
2001, The Observer published an article by Ron Rosenbaum, uh, who, along with a group of students, recorded an initiation of the Skull and Bone Society. Uh, the video shows the students kissing skulls, acting out murder scenes. Uh, this is the video I alluded to when we went over a bunch of Rosenbaum stuff earlier. Uh, he and his team used high-tech night vision video equipment uh, to view the initiation. They saw one bonesman pretending to be George W. Bush and heard him say, I'm going to ream you like I reamed Al Gore. And I'm going to kill you like I <laughs> killed Al Gore. Others shouted things like, and it sounded like they were just being goofballs, take that plunger out of my ass. Other members acted like they were cutting the initiates' throats. Uh, here's some audio, uh, you know, at least I found on YouTube from the airing of this footage on ABC. What you're hearing is the first recording ever made of the Skull and Bones initiation ceremony. It has never been broadcast before. <laughs> Somebody in a robe, moving up and down. Being new members of the club are being introduced into the macabre rituals of Skull and Bones by the senior students who are about to graduate. The club has what some might see as a strange fascination with death, skulls and bones. There's the chance too, difficult to hear first of all, but including the devil equals death and death equals death. <laughs> I mean, you can't really see much. Very dark, very grainy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds creepy, but especially with the music. Is it any creepier than some goth kids drinking Mountain Dew, eating Taco Bell, fucking with the Ouija board on a Saturday night, listening to some Scandinavian death metal? I would say no. Why do so many groups use occult imagery? Well, for me, you know, it's just, uh, I think it looks cool. Why? I mean, probably because it's taboo. You know, I like it because uh, I'm reactionary. You know, you tell me uh, I can't do something because your God says it's bad. My instinct is to say, watch me. Don't fucking tell me what to do. You know, I love horror movies. I love a lot of metal. I love a lot of dark imagery. Always have. Also don't worship some demonic deity. Also don't care about taking over the world. Do enjoy riling people up over what I consider completely harmless objects and imagery. To me, I see nothing in that video that's alarming. Just some rich kids doing some, you know, occult cosplays to be, you know, quote unquote, bad, mysterious, intriguing. Rosenbaum described more footage of what he recorded, uh, not aired on ABC. He said he manned the tape recorder that night and he first heard someone pretending to be George Bush, right? Which the member didn't seem too pleased about because he said in George Bush's accent, I got the power to bomb the crap out of China and they gave me this station. Another person shouted, Uncle Toby, Uncle Toby. And someone responded, shut up, neophyte. <laughs> someone else said that thing I mentioned earlier, take the plunger out of my ass. Uh, and then the other stuff I said about Reeman fucking Gore, killing Gore. Uh, Rosenbaum heard silence followed by the door opening and voices shouting, run, neophyte, run, neophyte. You can see hooded figures racing around shouting, run, neophyte, find the femur. Then after a period of silence, someone complained, we ought to get better blood than this fucking syrup, man. I love it. Uh, then he heard people shouting, lick my bum. <laughs> lick my bum hole, neophyte. That's like straight out of fucking, uh, oh my God, uh, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, lick my ass, neophyte. Do you like my bum, neophyte? Then someone shouted, get the femur, death equals death. George Bush then said, I'm the president of the motherfucking USA. These are not the words of some terrifying New World Order Illuminati group. These are the words of college kids being college kids. It reminds me of me. Me and my friends did tons of weird shit at Gonzaga. For a while, we pretended to be in a satanic cult. Uh, when we'd pass one another on campus, we would kneel down in front of the other person, say, Natos. <laughs> and then just keep moving. You know, Satan spelled backwards. Why did we do it? Because that's all it took 
to rile up certain kids. And we found that hilarious, very easy to push their buttons. I also, when I was a little kid, uh, used to fire up the, the kid living next door to me by telling him I worship the devil because he would get fucking outraged, lose his mind. Got a huge reaction. Same motivation that led me to torture my little sister and other neighborhood kids, right? It was entertaining. Why do they perform these rituals? You know, because they're truly summoning dark powers or because it's fun to act spooky and, you know, if some truth does slip out, it's going to freak out a lot of people and that's fun. Uh, you know, just like it was fun to chant cult, cult, cult at the Bad Magic Summer Camp last year. Uh, this is the synopsis of what Rosenbaum and his team supposedly saw. After some events inside the tomb that they could not see, the initiates were led out in some kind of courtyard by someone dressed up in a devil costume, right? Surrounded by the shouts, as mentioned, the whole lick my bum hole, the fucking plunger, all this stuff. The devil pulled him into a white tent. They found, uh, quote unquote, the femur, walked out with what looked like a thigh bone. Then they faced someone holding a butcher knife, standing over a woman covered in fake blood, that whole, the syrup thing. The neophyte then kisses a skull, and the person with the knife pretends to cut the woman's throat. And that's it. Spooky ritual over. Uh, now let me finish uh, describing something else I brought up earlier. Uh, February 17, 2009, uh, marking the 100th anniversary of Geronimo's death, the famed Apache leader's descendants filed a federal lawsuit against the Skull and Bone Society, demanding that they return the remains to the family. 20 descendants of Geronimo filed a lawsuit against Skull and Bones and Yale University despite Fort Sill, Oklahoma officials having always maintained that there is no evidence to support claims that Geronimo's skeleton was ever stolen from their cemetery. But Geronimo's great-grandson, Harlan Geronimo, said that even if the bones were not Geronimo's, they may belong to another Apache prisoner and should be returned. Geronimo died in 1909 in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, according to Bones lore. Uh, Prescott S. Bush, father of George H.W., grandfather of George W. Bush, along with other bonesmen, dug up Geronimo's grave while stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. In 1918, they allegedly stole his skull, femur, and riding gear. Members of the society allegedly displayed those remains in the tomb, but none of that has been proven. All speculation. In 2005, Yale historian and author Mark Wortman did find a 1918, 1918 letter from a bonesman that says, The skull of the worthy Geronimo the Terrible, exhumed from its tomb at Fort Sill by your club and the knight Hafner, is now safe inside the tomb, together with his well-worn femurs, bit, and saddle horn. In 2007, Harlan Geronimo told ABC that he wanted to offer his DNA to see if it matched the bones. He said, I really believe that that's my great-grandfather's skull. We want to return him to Gila, to the Hill, oh my gosh, to the Gila wilderness where he was born so that, so the spirit can complete its journey and go on to the next world. Presently, he's buried as a prisoner of war and it still has that status over him. At this point, he had written to the White House and was considering legal action. Bonesman and Secretary of RTA Incorporated, uh, the whole, <clears throat> excuse me, Russell Trust Association, Coit Lyles told ABC, it's not there and it never has been there. It's just a story. Alexandra Robbins told ABC about her conversation with Bonesman saying, they say there is a skull in a glass case just inside the entrance to the tomb and they've called it Geronimo. Robbins wrote that in the 1980s, after receiving pressure from former Apache tribal chairman, Ned Anderson, the society produced the supposed skull of Geronimo, but it didn't match his records. So it went back to the tomb. Yeah, of course not. Just another story told for a uh, shock value. But Ned Anderson still contacted Congressman John McCain uh, to look into the matter. Uh, he claimed that McCain and Congressman Morris Udall arranged a meeting with him and Jonathan Bush, brother of H.W. Bush. Robin said, according to Ned, they brought out a skull, but it was obviously a skull of a 10-year-old <laughs> and they were trying to bluff him and tried to get him to sign papers saying that he would never speak about it again. And Anderson rejected the offer. 
Judith Schiff, chief research archivist at Yale Sterling Memorial Library, authenticated the 1918 letter. She said that Prescott Bush and other bonesmen were stationed at Fort Sill during World War I with the Yale ROTC and may have brought the skull or sent it to Yale. However, she notes that although they thought it might have been Geronimo's skull, no one really knows whose it is. The 2009 suit demanded the return of Geronimo's remains from New Haven, Fort Sill, and wherever else they may be found. Former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark represented the Geronimo family. He said that Geronimo had clearly explained where he wanted to be buried when he met with Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, in March of 1905. His request was that he and the other uh, Chiricahua Apaches who were prisoners of war uh, would um, would be permitted to return to the headwaters of the Gila River, adding that if he couldn't return in his lifetime, uh, that he wanted to be buried there. Okay, so how is this matter se- settled? Well, it, it hasn't been. No one's been able to prove that the skull and bones still has the skull or that they've ever had it. You don't really get to sue for something effectively that might not exist where you think it is. Alexander Robbins noted that the skull is likely not in the tomb anymore, if it ever was, and that any of the roughly 800 living bonesmen could have it in their possession. In October of 2015 now, the Skull and Bones Skull and Bones get some new competition. The Yale Daily News reported that seven new secret societies would guarantee spots for students who felt excluded from the existing tapping process. The news reported that the seven new societies were meant to allow students to choose a group that fit their interests. Students were sorted into the societies based on preference chosen in a survey. Earlier that year, the Yale College Council also created a process that would allow students to opt out of society selection. Uh, The Yale Daily News said, by removing their names from consideration by any societies, juniors not interested in societies could avoid the discomfort and stress associated with the process. These societies are part of the society's initiative network funded by alumni. The SIN would do their own recruitment process in spring of 2016 that would run at the same time as traditional tapping. As conveyed by the Yale Daily News, what we're hoping to do here is basically create a process that puts the juniors in the center of it in terms of what they're looking for. Whereas the current process is really more predicated on what the seniors who are leaving the society want. All right. And with that, uh, maybe the end of an era, maybe the skull and bones now, uh, you know, just kind of fades away and gradually loses more and more prestige and allure and power. Time will tell. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. And uh, now for a segment I've not done in so, so long. If you haven't heard it before, for the first uh, few years of Time Stuck, I used to do a segment called Idiots of the Internet fairly regularly. Pretty simple concept. I just read internet comments from underneath, say, a, a YouTube video or Amazon book that's about the week's subject to show you and mock, you know, what silly shit people are saying and sometimes clever shit. It really cracks me up. And I started because I just found a, a lot of the comments uh, funny, under, you know, videos that I was watching just to get information on the subject, or I'd be, you know, getting a book on Amazon. I'd be kind of reading the reviews to see if the book seemed worthwhile (laughs) and the comments would just crack me up, but it kind of took too much away from the main narrative. Sometimes I felt it was too distracting. And then I launched a new show, Is We Dumb, that, you know, created and conceptualized to be a, a more robust version of this segment, a show based on just weird and or dumb shit the people say on the internet, you know, things that exist on the web. And then that show, of course, ran its course. And I didn't really bring the idiots of the internet back over here. Uh, but I do miss it sometimes. I feel like it fits sometimes. It felt right for this subject. 
I will say though, it's harder than it used to be a few years ago to find juicy comments because YouTube and other platforms really crack down a lot on conspiracy lore, right? Banning popular conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones and, you know, videos like Alex's, you know, hot damn, always had the best comments underneath him. But I still did find some this week, even one that features Alex Jones, not his channel, but features him storming the campus of Yale to rant and rave about how the Skull and Bones created the CIA, you know, uh, which they, they didn't. I'll talk about that later. Uh, with that reintroduction complete, let's see what random dipshits, I mean, concerned citizens, adept at critical thinking, are saying about the Skull and Bones. Idiots of the internet. Now, I'm going to start with some comments under the video. I, I played a snippet from a few moments ago, the ABC footage of the ritual that Rosenbaum filmed. Uh, this video was uploaded by user YoFam eight years ago, 256,000 views. User Friar Talk 6060 does not like the screams heard. Posting four years ago, this is demonic and satanic and not a joke at all. And I want to hear the whole thing without the cuts and the morons talking over it. I'm, <laughs> I'm including this comment just because Friar Talk says that the footage is not just demonic. It's not just satanic. It's demonic and satanic. Is there really a discernible difference between those two types of activities? Like, like when one of his friends says like, oh, wow, that's demonic. Is he like, uh, ah, actually, that is satanic. There's nothing demonic about that. Like, is there, is there something I'm missing? And, and how does he know it's a joke? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that user Friar Talk is not known in real life as a source of laughter and mirth. Not a real comedic expert. Uh, user, uh, it's X, it's like X, uh, again, most of the, most of the YouTube usernames are just like nonsensical letters, basically, but like, I think it's supposed to be Chicano experience, but it's like Yakano with an X experience. Uh, but two years ago, left a comment advising all of us, even, even watching this video that, uh, <laughs> advising all of us, you know, that it's dangerous to watch this video, which is odd because he, he left this comment or they left this comment under a video of something that I'm strongly assuming they, they did watch. But anyway, they wrote, Anyways, be careful what you invite into your subconscious. Even things you watch, you are inviting its energy into your temple. And then like a little prayer emoji. Uh, I don't think you have to worry uh, about this video too much. It's not that bad. And, and I don't think the energy of videos like this in general do much to you uh, unless you're, uh, you know, very mentally ill, perhaps. Even worse videos, I don't think they really do that much to you. And I say that because if the energy of dark content really fucked with our temples, I would be walking around with a blowtorch roasting babies or something right now after all the evil shit I've read about and watched working on this podcast for years. <laughs> like I've, I've put a lot of dark content into my temple. Um, but no, no, I still teared up uh, last year watching the Top Gun sequel. sequel. I, think, uh, I think I'm still okay. Uh, after watching this video, user Taru Kari Yamakara 8908 decided, <laughs> made the decision not to join the Skull and Bones. Uh, they wrote seven years ago, I was thinking of trying to get into the Skull and Bones Society if I ever get into college. I've changed my mind. I, I hope they were, they were being serious with that comment. If you're not even sure that you can get into a college, you literally have a 0% chance of becoming a Skull and Bones member. You're good, Taru. You have nothing to worry about. No one is tapping you. And then one more, just something silly that cracked me up. User SS Trunk one commented five years ago, ha, 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 ha. I'm on someone else's account and guess what I'm going to be and guess what? 
I'm going to be in the Skull and Bone Society. And then user uh, Tupa Canova did not like that comment. And a year, year ago, they replied, no, you won't. <laughs> and I just love that they took the time to write that. Like they got like like worked up when they saw somebody be like, ha ha, I'm going to join the Skull and Bone Society. No, fucking what? You, huh? You think you can join? Hell no. I'm calling bullshit, SS Trunk 1. Okay, now for the Alex Jones video. Uh, YDN Multimedia, the YouTube channel of the Yale Daily News, published a video on March 22nd, 2021, titled Conspiracy Theorist Alex Jones Visits Yale Skull and Bones. The description reads, well-known conspiracy theorist and far-right radio uh, show host Alex Jones visited Yale on Monday to film a video about senior society Skull and Bones. Jones believes that Bones founded the CIA and is responsible for the Great Recession. He got into arguments with several students about his views. Okay, this video has over 170,000 views and the video itself does not have any good footage. They're filming from across the street, mostly him and students yelling uh, at each other. Nothing interesting. Some good comments though. Almost all the comments are very, very pro Alex Jones. User JNWS30 loves Alex writing. It's amazing how correct Alex Jones has been over the years. Really? Has he been super correct? Like over the years? Uh, was he correct about the families of Sandy Hook school shooting victims being crisis actors? He owes almost $1.5 billion to those relatives for not being correct. After losing some lawsuits and a judge just recently okayed a forensic accountant to investigate his financial records so he can fucking pay up. He might be going away sooner than later. Uh, user Streetball Time Tagger SBTT3696 wrote the kind of shit so, so, so many people write about the Skull and Boats. People have died questioning skull and bones. It's definitely real. If people have died questioning the skull and bones, who? Name them. Where's the proof? So many vague accusations like that all over the place. Yes, it's definitely real. A real club like the Elks Lodge and the Freemasons and the Eagles and the Oddfellows. Do people die after questioning the Oddfellows, right? Or, uh, of anything other than old age? And then after skimming past about 300 consecutive uh, Alex Jones is a national treasure and write about everything type comments at Kevin Joseph 517 comments. Students at Yale should investigate skull and bones. Both presidential candidates were former members. Okay. Uh, yeah, that comment was left a, a year ago. Well, Kevin, you're talking about the 2004 election, Bush versus Kerry almost 20 years ago, and the only presidential election ever featuring two Bonesmen going head-to-head. That's meaningless. Again, it would be meaningful if election after election featured Bonesmen, but it's not even close to that. Come on, people. There have been 45 different presidents. Three of them have been Bonesmen. 42 have not. Context. Context matters. Numbers matter. And then finally, we go to a video uploaded a year ago by Hazards and Catastrophes. It's titled Illuminati, Myths and Realities of a Parallel World, full documentary. And this doc talks uh, quite a bit about Skull and Bones. And it's popular, 3.7 million views. And user Hillary S. emails, uh, Hillary S. emails 1615. Uh, comments a year ago, George W. Bush, I am a member of Skull and Bones, which is a secret society, and that is all that I can say about it. Huh, and that part's in quotes. And then she adds, Kind of says it all, doesn't it? No, that doesn't even say close to all. In fact, I would say that says close to nothing. You clearly decided this group is bad. You clearly decided George W. Bush is also bad. So in that context, from that perspective, 
you know, you have, I imagine, almost entirely fabricated this, uh, you know, these uh, assumptions bad about them with very little real evidence and, uh, you know, refusing to comment on the skull and bones would therefore also be bad. But it's not, not objectively, not logically, not based on what you just pointed out. Greg Jones 7724 replies with a nice comment to illustrate why it's not uh, saying doesn't mean it's nefarious. I'm a master Mason. We raise money for burn unit kids and the special Olympics secret does not equal bad fucking mic drop Hillary. And while Hillary does reply to other comments in this thread, she does not reply to Greg Jones doesn't say shit. Maybe because she's, you know, smart enough to know he's right. Maybe not a complete idiot of the internet. And again, I wish I, I wish I could have found some juicier quotes, but hard to find as much conspiracy stuff now. Uh, bit shoot, even like these random YouTube competitors, they, they tend to be pretty janky and not have any comments. Uh, going to wrap up now. Are the Skull and Bones some nefarious occult, crazy powerful organization? Well, obviously, you know that I don't think so. I highly doubt it. I, I can't know for sure. Highly doubt it. Uh, did they help found the CIA, right? Common claim, you know, one that Jones made. Well, first off, I would say, who gives a shit if they did? Has the CIA done a bunch of shady stuff? Well, yeah. Have they arguably needed to do, you know, a good portion of it to preserve the American life uh, that we have right now, stop the spread of communism in years past? I would also say yes. Some of what they've done, and I've talked about it in past episodes, impossible in my mind to justify. But a lot of it, a lot of important shit was done. A lot of dirty work that needed to be done in a world where sometimes you have to fight dirty to win, right? The whole freedom isn't free. Does America need a powerful covert intelligence agency? Yes, it does. If you don't think so, look at Russia, right? Look at the Soviet Union before Russia. Look at China and much more. So is founding the CIA inherently some kind of evil act? Fuck no, it's a fucking rational act. Also, President Truman formed the CIA, right? Technically not a bonesman, was not a Yale student. Rear Admiral Sowers was appointed as a first director of the Central Intelligence on January 23rd, 1946 by President Truman, not a bonesman. Uh, not a Yale student, Hoyt Sanford Vandenberg, second director, not a bonesman, not a Yale student, Roscoe H. Hillenquetter or Coter, third director, not a bonesman, not a Yale student, Walter Bedell Smith, fourth director, no bonesman, no student, uh, Yale, Alan Welsh Dulles, fifth director, first civilian director, very noted director, not a bonesman, not a Yale student. There's a pattern here. Obviously you're sensing are the Skull and Bones connected in some way to the Illuminati, the real Illuminati, a Bavarian secret society in the late 19th century who did want to change the world and make it better, partially because in many ways the world fucking sucked back then? Yeah, probably. Right? Uh, like a lot of secret societies, you know, uh, since they were inspired by them. Is wanting to change the world necessarily a bad thing? No. Is wanting a one world government necessarily a bad thing? No. Wanting a world of more freedom, equity, and peace. Uh, not sure if that's actually possible, but fun to fantasize about. Certainly not bad. And I'm sure it's just fun to gather in an old building with a bunch of other intelligent students and fantasize about stuff like changing the whole world. My son, Kyler, thinks he's going to change the world and fix everything. He would love to be put in charge of the world. Of course he would. He's smart. And more importantly, he's 17 and idealistic. Who gives a fuck if the Skull and Bones do want to take over the world? They're not going to. I bet a lot of the people, most of the people who hurl baseless accusations against them also would like to take over the world and shape it how they see fit. How many people mad about the skull and bones would join if they got tapped? How much of the concern about them is partially jealousy? Have you ever sat around bullshit with your buddies and joked about how you could just, uh, you could just fix all the world's problems if they just give you half a chance, right? I have several people I know have, 
What do I think about the Skull and Bones? What do I think they are? I think they're just a group that formed at a time and a place that allowed them to recruit a lot of members who would go on to do big, important things with or without them. And then these talented, powerful people joined forces and created this legacy of power. And it certainly opened more and more doors for members. And the more Bonesmen who got into positions of power, the more other Bonesmen were given a leg up, right? What's that saying? It's not, you know, what you know, it's who you know. I hate that shit, but it oftentimes is very true, right? It's the way the world works, like it or not. I've wished I I would have had better networking skills many times over the course of my career. I fucking hate networking and hating it, not forging a lot of alliances with a lot of other creative types for sure has limited my overall exposure. And I'm not complaining. I'm very happy with uh, where I'm at truly, but I'm still aware of choices I've made that were not great, right? Career-wise on paper. And I don't blame anyone for forging alliances in order to get ahead. If that's what works for them. If networking works for you, fucking go for it. It's proven to help time and time again. If you could network your way into the skull and bones, that is for sure going to help you land some really good internships, jobs, investments, et cetera. Not as much as it used to, I don't think. It's waning in power, but you know, still helps. You know, you'll probably have a lot of fun doing weird shit too, like playing a cult dress up and freaking out the fucking neighbors and millions of people around the world who think a bunch of skulls and pentagrams and knives and rituals actually give you some kind of dark power. So much fear around the skull and bones. I think it's truly based in their name and the rituals, right? Some skulls, some rituals. That's all you need to truly freak out billions of people around the world. It's that easy and illogical. I met a lot of people into that kind of shit over the years and not a single fucking one of them has shown me any proof of like knowing wizard spells. You know, they've never conjured a demon, never levitated even a few inches. You know, not one of them have obviously harnessed the Dark Lord's power and used it for fame and fortune. The coolest shit they've probably done is just turn me on to some good music and give me inspiration to get more, I don't know, occult tattoos myself that spook the same kind of people that the Skull and Bones spook. Final verdict, I am not the slightest bit worried about the skull and bones. If you are very worried about them or somebody you know is, man, I'm jealous of how much time they have on their hands to think about shit that doesn't matter. If I ever were to truly infiltrate their organization, I'd mostly want to know if they do actually beat off in coffins. And that's all I got. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Order of Skull and Bones, a.k.a. the Skull and Bones Society, a.k.a. the Order, Order 322, and my favorite, the Brotherhood of Death. Uh, The oldest secret society at Yale, founded in 1832, founded by Yale students who were reportedly displeased by the Phi Beta Kappa elections that year. Founder William H. Russell may have been influenced by the European slash Bavarian secret society he, he visited while studying abroad in Germany, right? Illuminati. Almost 200 years later, Skull and Bones still shrouded in mystery due to an oath of uh, secrecy that members must take and do seem to take seriously. Number two, there are many conspiracy theories surrounding the Skull and Bones Society, the most popular being that members are collaborating to establish some kind of new world order. Many powerful people are or were Bonesmen, including presidents, business executives, scientists, military leaders, other influential politicians. Although there is still a lot of mystery about the secret activities of the Bonesmen and their patriarchs, hot, hard Yale father daddy's covered in mud, maybe jerking off in coffins, it seems like Skull and Bones is probably nothing more than an elite network networking group that provides opportunities for students during their time at Yale and after graduation. Uh, number three, the Skull and Bones Society didn't start admitting Jewish students, black students, and members of the LGBT community until the 20th century. Women were not admitted into Bones until 1991, 
when after a lawsuit and threats to shut down the club for a whole year, the patriarchs narrowly voted to allow them in. Ever since, Skull and Bones has tapped members of different races, genders, and students from diverse student organizations, which reflects positive changes made on Yale's campus. Number four, for well over a century, the initiation rituals of the Skull and Bones Society were a mystery, but recent work by writers like Alexander Robbins and Ron Drama Queen Rosenbaum have helped uncover Bones' secrets. The initiation ceremony appears to be an elaborate game of dress-up that involves the neophytes finding bones, kissing the Pope's shoe, kissing the skull, as well as some fake throat slitting, a, a lot of yelling, maybe some coffin jerking. The initiation is followed by a summer retreat to Deer Island owned by the Russell Trust Association, where bonesmen sacrifice babies to Satan or socialize with notable patriarchs and their families. During the school year, a new member might lay in a coffin or not and give the other 14 new members and probably a patriarch or two all the details of their life and sexual history. This exercise is meant to establish a close bond among members and ensure that they won't tell any group secrets and maybe give them jerk-off fuel and or blackmail. Number five, new info, 14 years ago, Reddit user Whisper Again posted an AMA claiming they were a member of Skull and Bones. And of course, they can be full of shit, but I actually think they might be legit. At the very least, well-versed on what they uh, you know, should say to sound legit. The following are some of the questions and responses. Question, Geronimo's Bones, you got anything on that story? Whisper Again, no comments, but yeah, we has them. <laughs> Question, One, does Bones offer any financial support to members during or post their tenure at Yale? Two, how did Alexander Robbins' book affect your society? It seemed all a bit of a joke to me that people took it so seriously. Three, I know with other organizations, friend was in scroll and key, that the Rolodex is the most powerful element. However, did you find the actual society meetings, debates, rituals, etc. to be enriching? She often spoke of them as kind of a stepping stone of sorts, much as a modern finishing school. Four, how much is the Bones Endowment at this time? Did it take a hit at the end of 2008? Yeah, with the big financial crisis then. Five, has someone ever befriended, hired, or otherwise affiliated themselves with you in hopes of benefiting from your membership? And so now Whisper again addresses these points. One, Bonesmen get cash when they graduate. It's not enough to make you rich. It's more like a sizable parting gift. Yeah, that's probably that 15 grand. Two, Bonesmen, especially old ones, seem to love the secrecy, uh, secrecy and mystique of Skull and Bones. I think it's pretty stupid. And that's about the outrage over uh, Alexander's book. Three, the society meetings are a cool element. They really force you to bond with your fellow taps in very short order. Okay, so this, you know, they like the rituals. Four, I don't pay attention to that stuff, but I hear RTA is doing just fine. Yeah, they got plenty of money. And five, all the time. But it's pretty easy to tell when people start sucking up to you right after the rumpus publishes your name. Now, another question. What are the benefits of being in S&B? Whisper again. Getting to know other people who are or will one day be in positions of great importance. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Uh, Question, what's the point of the club? What does it do? Whisper again. Bones is really all about helping other Bonesmen. There isn't a lot more to it than that. Follow-up question, then why the secrecy? Whisper again. It's basically a way to hype up the organization. Think about it. If you were a 21-year-old smartass in an organization that everyone thought controlled the world, wouldn't you try to further that perception? I fucking love that. Question, as a form of pseudo-authentication, could you elaborate on the meanings of the number 322 beyond which beyond that, which is publicly known and hypothesized? I'll whisper again, there is no real reason per se. There's a silly story told that were the descendants of the uh, Demosthenian uh, tradition. Demosthenes died in 322, so there you have it. The alternate story of us being the second chapter of some German society combined with 1832 to form 322. 
is categorically false. Question, what was the hazing and initiation process like? I was in a Greek fraternity and I'm wondering how they compare. Why do they tap people in their senior year? Who runs it? Grad students mostly? Whisper again. Almost, parenthetical, all secret societies at Yale are senior societies. It's an old tradition. The society members run themselves. But the reason the taps are done at the end of junior year is so the previous class can teach them how to run things and transition power, so to speak. Grad students are not involved. There is no hazing per se. Tap night is an initiation type event with blindfolding, reading of names, and sharing of deep, dark secrets. Bonesmen dress up in masks to tap their initiates. Finally, the response that actually reveals some secrets. Uh, question, no offense, but if you're legit, you're obviously still an undergrad. And I think that people of Reddit wanted to hear from some more senior members who perhaps have seen exactly what it can, cannot do for them in the long run. Also informing us on multiple answers that it's all about helping your fellow bonesmen is all good and well, but it isn't what we're reading this to see. The obsession with death and dead things. That is talk more on the obsession with dead things and other such interesting phenomena. If you came here to say it's really not what you think, then say it and let us get on with our lives. Whoa, coming in hot, Redditor. How about you calm the fuck down and thank them for talking to your dipshit ass when they, they get nothing out of this? And Whisper again says, sorry, let me tell you about some interesting details about Bones then. Since after all, that's what you wanted to hear. Most people enter Skull and Bones thinking it's going to be lame and they're going to learn all about it, expose the secret inner workings of it, and then go back to their friends and chuckle about how lame it is. But it ropes you in. In that way, it's very cult-like. The obsession with death and skulls and human remains are all a way to force group bonding. Other societies have it too. Wolf's Head is obsessed with Egypt, for instance. The point of all this is that you get a bunch of skeptical king of the universe type A personalities together in a room and through the magic of a cultish tomb and some deep personal sharing, everyone bonds. It's really quite remarkable. The list of bonesmen isn't secret, but what's said in the tomb is. Every year, the Yale Rumpus publishes an accurate list of who's in the society. It's not a big deal. What is a big deal is sharing secrets told in the tomb. You're, fo you're forced to trust your fellow bonesmen very quickly because you share with them your sexual history, your deepest and darkest secrets, and your greatest aspirations. Bones is a dry tomb, but you often get wasted with your society outside of the tomb. Bonesmen as college students or uh, as college students or want to do spread misinformation about the society in order to increase the mystique. Rumors I've heard that are false, that we have a beluga whale, that we use more water than the rest of New Haven combined, that we somehow control the world, that we make everyone a millionaire by the time they're X age and that we somehow secretly plot to take over the world. So kind of redundant there, but things that are true. We have a lot of skulls in our tomb. Many of them were obtained illegally back when the society was obsessed with tomb robbing. I feel a bit bad about it. We have a lot of Nazi paraphernalia lying around. It's not because we're Nazis. In fact, there are plenty of non-white members. Rather, it ties into the society's obsession with death. It's really not what you think, but it's still fucking sweet sometimes. The tomb is more like a hangout place. If you sit outside the tomb long enough, you'll see people coming in and out. People use it to store equipment over the summer. You get tapped the semester before senior year, uh, take a nap on a couch, or just sometimes study. We went to Deer Island. That place is just a rundown island, but it's cool to think that you have some exclusive right to be there. The tomb was originally with an open, originally had an open courtyard, but people in the neighboring residential college, J.E., Jonathan Edwards, could look into it, so it got closed up. Coolest things I've done include kissing Geronimo's skull with tongues scraping over the nasty-ass teeth. I could get kicked out if my identity was revealed. Members could do worse, but it wouldn't be in the form of cutting off my balls or leaving a horse's head in my bed. Rather, I'd be a persona non grata wherever there were bonesmen, and there are bonesmen fucking everywhere. And that is it. Time suck. 
top five takeaways. The Skull and Bones Secret Society has been sucked. I know so much more uh, about them than I did last week. I hope you can now say the same. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for the help in making Time Suck each and every week. Starting again with Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for producing, directing today. To the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, for helping with production. Thanks also to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. And for helping run our socials along with our Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thank you to producer Olivia Lee for the initial research this week. Thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Sucks subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week, very excited, we return to Cult, 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 Jeffrey Lundgren and the Kirtland Cult. We're going to dive back into cults in the world of Mormonism with a very interesting man, Jeffrey Lundgren. Uh, this man born in Independence, Missouri in 1950 was a member of the Restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon splinter group, until his teaching started to get very unconventional. Uh, though Jeffrey seemed to have the typical all-American upbringing and would even do a stint in the Navy uh, during Vietnam, his later life would be anything but wholesome and all-American as he used his interpretation of Mormon scripture and the Bible to bring more and more people into his cult. Eventually, he'd wind up in Kirtland, uh, Kirkland, Ohio, and after getting excommunicated by the RLDS church, He'd set up shop at a rundown farm where his followers worked, lived, did chores, all the while handing over paychecks to Jeffrey. Wouldn't be long before Jeffrey started talking about uh, a mysterious pattern, the way God spoke to him, and what he and his followers had to do to restore God's kingdom on earth. He predicted that they would take over the Kirkland Temple by force, fight off Satan's army, and meet God face to face. And his followers believed it. They thought Jeffrey was a prophet. And in our episode series on him, we'll be going over, you know, why he absolutely was a prophet, how he, uh, you know, knew with 100% certainty. And we know that God was speaking to Jeffrey Lundgren and everyone, you know, who wasn't listening to him was a heathen who's going to burn in hell for eternity. Only through our Lord and Savior, Jeffrey, may we receive eternal life. Uh, no, uh, obviously Jeffrey Lundgren was peddling insane theories, theories that included the fact that the group would not be able to meet God until the sin was purged from the ranks. Someone in the group had to die. And since Jeffrey told everyone different info, everyone thought it might be them or their closest friend or the person Jeffrey had told them to marry. Soon, Jeffrey's rage would focus on five people, the Avery family, Dennis, Cheryl, and their three daughters. The Averys were devoted followers of Jeffrey's, but Dennis Avery kept just a little bit of money uh, to the family, didn't give it to the cult, and they lived on a different property, and Jeffrey didn't like that, and Jeffrey felt they had to die. Do they die? We'll find out. Next week, we're going to do uh, the first of a two-part series on the very strange, uh, bloody story of Jeffrey Lungan. Right now, we're going to head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Uh, before I get into the updates this week, just a quick word. Uh, I do sometimes lurk in the Facebook group and Discord on Reddit just to see what folks are saying about Time Suck, right? Without listeners, this goes away. I'd like to uh, know what listeners are thinking. Well, right after recording last week's episode where I talked about how you don't have to say nice things to me to get messages played, there was this really funny Reddit thread with a pic of an elephant sucking his own dick, uh, captioned with something like Dan reading the Time Sucker updates. So first off, that is very funny. And second, I, I do just want to remind everybody that I just read what's written. I don't cut off the pleasantries because, you know, I don't want to twist people's messages tonally into something they didn't write. 
And that feels disingenuous. But again, I am not the kind of personality that is like, bend the knee and kiss the ring if you need your voice to be heard in my domain. So again, you can write whatever you fucking want to write uh, at the start of these. Uh, That now said, let me read today's messages as they are written. First one comes in from space lizard Alicia Welch, who writes, Dan, the most handsome, smartest man with the biggest dick anyone has literally ever had. You are the best human that's ever lived and no one is worthy of standing in your deity-like presence. Kidding. <laughs> she didn't write that. Thank God. She wrote, uh, sorry, this may be long, but I just have to say, I love your podcast. I listened to Scared to Death since day one. Now a space lizard. Just finished the anti-vaccine, smiled, laughed, and nearly cried. I'm a mom of two kids. One is high-functioning autistic, and I'm so proud of both my boys. Uh, with saying this, autistic kids are like snowflakes. Not one of them is alike. Just thank you so much for your kind words and actions. I struggle every day with PTSD, pain, and depression. With your help, I see the lights. Uh, one time I was very suicidal, but now I don't want to do something stupid and end up in Nimrod's butthole. Would you please give me a small shout out and let others know that they're not alone? This too will pass. You are a warrior. Never give up the fight. Well, thank you, Alicia. Thank you for being brave and an awesome mom and agreeing to stick around for your boys and yourself, everyone else who undoubtedly loves the shit out of you. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. No one is truly alone with their pain. Someone else understands you. I think always. Probably many someones. Uh, next up, Sweet Sack Macy Garaba calls me out for fucking a name up again and shares a little bit about an amazing bonus dad she knows. She writes, damn motherfucking comments, king of bad magic, suck master, lizard lover. I'm a bad magician inside and out, space lizard and Annabelle. Antony, dude, it's Antony, not Anthony. <laughs> you do the same thing in the Cleopatra suck. That is funny. I, I don't even like, when I see that Antony, my brain automatically adds an H. Uh, another beloved, see you in Pontiac, Michigan. It's not Detroit. I know, but it's close. Come on. I'll be there with my amazing boyfriend, bonus dad to my daughter. I can't even express how amazing this human is. Uh, he is also a Dan. Must be something about Daniels that are just great, LOL. If by a slim chance this makes it on the show, please give him a shout out. It is not easy being a parent. And he stepped right into a father role and has accepted her and I as a package from the start. He is the best bonus daddy a Sour Patch Kid could ask for. She's four going on Tiny Mom and we are in the middle of the fuck this shit force. This age has nothing on the terrible twos, I swear. These two humans are my light in all of the darkness. Anywho, this man is my love, my partner, my fishing buddy, my all of the above. He showed me love as possible again after a ship marriage and an even shittier divorce. J-Bear and I love you, babe. We got this. Well, that is an adorable message, Macy. Uh, This other Dan sounds amazing. Yay for bonus dads. Uh, Bonus dads and bonus moms, so important. Such a noble thing to do, truly. So good on you, Daniel. Uh, have fun fishing, you two. Catch the shit out of whatever you're casting for. And now top shelf sack, Xavier Salinas. Has an important reminder for all of us uh, before I close out with a little Night Witches update. He writes, uh, or they write, uh, Dear Master Sucker, Bad Magic Crew, I'm writing in to say thank you for helping me through a tough time. I've been listening to you fuck up words for about two years now. Our first binge is we dumb and I'm now almost caught up on Time Suck. I re- recently listened to the Pop Award episode and it inspired me to try and spend time and appreciate the family I have, especially my little brother. And life seemed to shine a bit brighter after I started coming around more, calling and texting, or just sharing dumb memes with them. But it's life, so you never know what's coming next, and what came next really fucking hurts. My 19-year-old little brother, Christopher Rene Villa, passed away 2-1-23. Damn. He crashed around 1 a.m. from driving under the influence, couldn't stay awake only five minutes from my mom's house. 
At around 2.30 a.m., sheriffs came knocking on my door looking for me because the car was still in my name. I had just given it to him a few months prior after talking to the sheriff and figuring out what the fuck had happened. I had to relay the news now to my mother and stepdad. I think that's the hardest part of all of this. Seeing everyone else in pain, hearing my mom cry and call out for him in the middle of the night, asking me where he is. I don't know what to say. I'm just trying not to lose my shit. I'm a pretty strong person, but holy fuck, I don't wish this on anyone. My brother was so sweet and just happy, always smiling. So determined and disciplined, just a damn good kid. Great at football, basketball, and track. He was the good one. I was the fuck up and got lucky so many times I got that tatted on my arm. It enrages me so much wondering why him, just what the fuck. There's so much more I want to say, but it's hard enough to type this as uh, as is. All I can do is help my mother pick up the pieces and live for him to the fullest. Anyway, Meet Sacks, love your friends and family because you never know when life's going to kick you right in the dick or the lady wing. Tell your people you love them because one day you will not be able to. I figured if I write to anyone, why not you guys? Because listening to Time Suck really changed me for the better and have a better attitude on life and other people and hearing about peanut butter butter. Showbiz. Truly, thank you for this community. It's amazing. I love you guys. So thanks for reading. Uh, if you do, three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangle. Stay here, Lucifina. Glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald. And, you know, just keep on sucking. P.S. Not sorry for the long email. What this big deal? Your big deal, Master Sucker, LLC, long live Chris. Yeah, man, LLC, long live Chris, man. So sorry you had to experience that, Xavier. Fucking brutal. Uh, you're clearly a strong-ass meat sack. To carry that load, let your family lean on you, what sounds like uh, a lot. And you're right, live life to the fullest, partially to honor your brother's memory. I imagine, uh, you know, that he would want you to do the same if the situation was reversed. And thank you in your time of grief for taking a moment to remind us all that we don't know what's around the corner. So don't hold back, right? You know, any love you got for those around you today, make sure those you love know that you love them. Uh, Hail Nimrod. And last up, smart sucker Laura has let me know that Lucifina might not be pleased with me. A misunderstanding that I'm going to clean up right here. I hope. Uh, Laura wrote, uh, hi, Dan, long time listener, first time emailer. So Hi. I got hooked on Time Suck about three years ago when my coworker suggested it to me when we were swapping podcast recommendations. I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the years, and Time Suck is one of my only tried and true shows that I never miss. As a lifelong learner, what keeps me coming back is the wide variety of fascinating topics and top-notch research while keeping things fun and irreverent. You'd think that wouldn't be a rare find in the podcasting world, but it is. So good on you. Keep on doing what you're doing. I feel compelled to send my first email after I just finished the Night Witches episode. I consider myself a bit of a World War II history buff. So I'm always extra excited about these sucks. The episode did not disappoint, and I was delighted to hear a story I'd never heard before, but one thing did give me pause. Throughout the episode, you exclaimed, Hail Lucifina, which is nothing new, par for the course, but the placement of these exclamations is what made me stop and think. I've always assumed Lucifina is the goddess of all things sex and sexiness. She personifies desire, sexuality, attraction. I've never heard you proclaim her name in any of the other war-related sucks. I think Nimrod has been the one to thank in those previous episodes about bravery, commitment, and being a badass motherfucker. The world and women themselves often judge their value to society based on how beautiful they are or how fuckable uh, or how fuckable. Women have had a lot more to offer this world. And as a husband and father, I know you know this, but it can still be an idea we subconsciously cling to. The night witches were badass fighters. They did amazing things that had nothing to do with their looks, attractiveness, or how fuckable they were. Yet throughout the episode, you mentioned how hot they were, hailed Lucifina, and we're sure to mention that they did all this amazing stuff while still looking fine. Would you ever make sure to include how handsome the other World War II soldiers you discussed were? 
I guess what I'm getting at is the idea that many men and women think that the highest way to compliment women, even the most courageous war heroes, is to hail their looks. I would love to see a world where a woman's looks never came into the conversation when discussing her success and triumphs. Being beautiful is great and it makes life easier, but it isn't a qualifier. It's not table stakes for a woman to be considered valuable. A woman can look like Jojo the dog-faced boy and still be a badass, be valuable and be respected. Anyway, just something to think on. Hail Nimrod for giving us a community of open-mindedness that allows us to bring these subtle undertones to the surface and discuss them. Yes. Thank you for reading Laura. Well, Laura, first off, a great Jojo the dog-faced boy reference. I haven't heard that one, uh, one of those in a while. Maybe laugh for sure. And, and yeah, and second, often in real life, and sometimes here on the podcast, I, I work things out in my head that become obvious to myself, but then forget to share those things out loud with the rest of the world. Not, not even necessarily forgetting, but like, you know, like the rest of the world isn't mind readers uh, are not going to understand where I come from. I, I just don't think of it. Uh, the Hail Lucifinas were not actually references to the attractiveness of the night, which is in 90% of the uh, instances in that episode. I am aware of how often women are judged by their looks alone. And I, and I truly do try to, to not make that, uh, you know, an important and defining aspect of their lives. Uh, I don't comment on the attractiveness of men for the most part, simply because I'm just not personally attracted to men. I don't think of other men as sexual creatures uh, in the same way. I do think of women sexually because, you know, I'm attracted to the female form, but also realize women are so much more than the sum of their sexual parts. What I intended to do in the Night Witches episode was to associate Lucifina, uh, the goddess herself, not just with sexuality, but also with bravery and strength. That, you know, you could, Lucifina could uh, fucking love you for being just a, a badass, a, a champion of, of, of women or a woman who is strong and brave. To not have all of that go to the masculine deity of Nimrod. But I doubt I said that. Uh, just thought it. And, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, I am sorry that I distracted you. Uh, Lucifina, to me, can also represent, you know, uh, much more than beauty. She's a fucking warrior whenever she needs to be. A, a real Achilles. Ironically, when I do think of Achilles, I do think of sexiness. Uh, can we all admit that Brad Pitt, when he played Achilles, transcended all sexual preference? And just became uh, fucking, you know, uh, sexy uh, to all living, breathing humans. Just, oh my God, uh, just amazing. But I hope that that clears things up, Laura. And, and I do love emails like this. I do love discussing things like this. They're my favorite kind of updates because um, it is good to discuss those. I'm sure we'll get some emails about my uh, Boy Scout, Girl Scout comment. And I look forward to them. We can talk about it, you know, and uh, maybe come to a better common understanding. So hail Nimrod, hail Nimrod my God, hail Lucifina. Uh, both of them boss bitches in their own rights. And uh, and hail you, Laura. Thanks for sending in that message. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Uh, please don't risk a breaking and entering charge, or worse, trying to sneak into the Skull and Bones tomb this week. It doesn't sound like you're going to find anything that interesting. Play it safe. Don't waste your time. Jerk off in your own coffin. And keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Yes, we did it, Geronimo. We've tricked them again. Ah, they have no idea that I'm clearly a bonesman. Once a bonesman, always a bonesman. Right, Geronimo? I mean, come on. Gonzaga? Have they really been buying that bullshit? I'm clearly 
a highly educated Yaley. I mean, just think about my master of the Italian language alone. Maserati, Bugatti, Toro, and Dennis. You get it, Geronimo. You always get it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.